0: Skin in the game is about four topics in one. Uncertainty and the reliability of knowledge, both practical and scientific, assuming there is a difference, or in less polite words, bullshit detection. Symmetry in human affairs, that is, fairness, justice, responsibility, and reciprocity. Information sharing in transactions. And rationality in complex systems and in the real world. That these four cannot be disentangled is something that is obvious when one has skin in the game. Neil, how's it going?
1: It It's going. This is an episode we've been waiting for eagerly for a long, while. Eagerly time.
0: anticipating, yes. Yeah. <laughs> our, our second like release date-ish episode after 12 Rules for Life.
1: Yep. Yeah. And of course, the book we're talking about is Skin in the Game by Nassim Taleb, who, if you've been listening to this podcast at all, you know <laughs> is our... Probably one of our uh, favorite writers and most mentioned
0: people on this podcast. Yeah, definitely top three cited authors on Made You Think. And for good reason, too. I mean, that's kind of how this podcast happened is we did an episode on Antifragile for NatChat and it just did like twice as many downloads as any episode before that and we basically were like all right so we're clearly onto something here yeah <laughs> and it was also
1: so easy to talk about anti-fragile for three hours oh yeah
0: incredibly easy
1: <laughs> yeah we were just like oh okay this is there's something here about having a like a discussion about books and people seem to like it so yeah we've been we've been waiting for skin in the game ever since i don't even know when celeb started talking about it but maybe like A year or two at this
0: point. Yeah, well, he started talking about a book in abstract, I think, about two years ago. But he wasn't really saying what it was. And then he was starting to release those medium pieces, which eventually turned out to be parts of the book. So he'd been refining the ideas around it. But it's been six years since Antifragile came out. So it's quite a long period. I think it's the longest period between any two of his books as well, because also for Fooled by Randomness, Black Swan, and Procrustes, he did two releases, a first and second edition, but he never did a second edition for Anti-Fragile, or at least not yet.
1: Mm, I bet there will be at some point. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually surprised, though, that this is, um, or at least I was surprised by the length of this book. Like, it wasn't as long as any of the other ones.
0: Yeah, it was much shorter, and honestly, I felt like less well-organized.
1: Yeah, I viewed this as, like, almost an extended essay. Well, like not an extended essay, like each book, you know, how he organizes it by books. Like it was like each book was like an essay and there was a lot less math. But I guess that's part of skin in the game, I guess, is like it's not a mathematical concept necessarily. It's more of like a moral and uh, virtue. And uh, like, like, I don't know, there was it was much more heavy on that side than his previous ones were more probability focused, I would say. Yeah, maybe not anti-fragile as much, but like Black Swan and. Fooled by Randomness were, you know, almost like you could argue that they were almost probability books with other stuff in them.
0: That's a good point. It was more almost philosophical focused than some of the same math stuff that we're used to from past books.
1: Yeah, he elaborated in this one on things that i had been curious about for what his like actual beliefs were on them. Like, for example, like he talked a lot about religion and then virtue also, which is like he's talked about virtue in other books, but like always almost like in a tangent kind of way. Whereas in this one, he kind of dove way deeper into those topics instead of using them as tangents. Yeah.
0: I think the other funny thing with this book was that I was much less blown away by it than Anti-Fragile or Black Swan.
1: Oh, definitely. I was talking to someone about that yesterday who's also reading it. I don't think he's finished it yet, but we were talking about it. And Part of that could be because of the Medium post.
0: That's what I was thinking, too, is I feel like he gave so much of it away on Medium and Twitter that I really felt like I was rereading stuff I had heard from him already throughout the book. I didn't really feel like I learned that much new stuff from it compared to it was like Anti Fragile. I had to read it three times at least, and I was still downloading new stuff. I don't feel like I'm going to go back to Skin in the Game as much as I went back to Anti Fragile and Black Swan.
1: No, I don't think so. I don't think so either. I mean, I, I think I could read Antifragile like five more times and still probably not get all the stuff out of it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Because it's just such, like, there's just so much info in there. I mean, this was, like, interesting. Like, I would say I, I didn't stop reading it. Like, I was definitely entertained while I was reading it. And there was, you were definitely, like, getting something out of the book if you weren't as familiar with skin in the game as a concept. Right. Uh, the person I talked to also yesterday was saying that they were feeling like they were getting a lot more out of it, but... They had only read anti fragile once, and then they also were saying, like, the concept of skin in the game is probably more self-evident to people like us, Mm. who kind of, like, I mean, I don't want to make us sound, like, super arrogant or something, (laughs) but I feel like both of us are kind of, like, uh, exemplifying that in our lives right now, where every project we do, we have skin in the game, like, you're a business owner, I'm a business owner, this podcast, like, you know, we finance the whole thing, like, we are obviously the hosts, like we have skin in the game in most of the projects we're working on. So for us, some of these concepts might be maybe more self-evident than to, like I was talking about some of them to uh, my parents and it's kind of more mind-blowing for them mm-hmm. like when they view things through this lens. So yeah, maybe some of it's just like we, like it's so ingrained at this point that maybe it wasn't as mind-blowing as, uh, as it would be for some other people.
0: Yeah, and I think the point about The number of times you've read Antifragile is good, too, because he does talk about skin in the game in there. And I feel like if you get a super good grasp on the Antifragile concepts and then you read just a couple little things about skin in the game, you can deduce a lot of the like natural derivations that he talks about in this book. I feel like we've come up with some of them on the podcast, too, because it's sort of like he says in the intro that this is just sort of a continuing of the logical flow from one book to the next, where... You know, if you read Full About Randomness, you can see how that led him to have the realizations for Black Swan. You can see how Black Swan led him to have the realizations for Antifragile. And you can see how Antifragile, you know, led to have the realizations for Skin in the Game. And I feel like spending six years <laughs> reading and rereading the book and talking about it on this podcast, we definitely had like way more exposure to a lot of his stuff than the average person.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, the other thing is that we both follow him on Twitter. Yeah. And uh, you didn't read the Medium post, though, right? I
0: avoided most of the Medium posts for this reason. I didn't want to have the book spoiled by, like, less good versions of his thoughts.
1: Yeah. I was really entertained, though, with this book. I gotta say that. Like... There were a lot of the great, like, Telebian attacks. Oh, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> Each book
0: he shits on people more than the last book.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I, I think because he sees how good it is for his sales, right? Oh, yeah, that's probably. It's like it. when you're nope. just the fact that he is like criticizing Hillary Clinton and Steven Pinker like repeatedly in the book is going to drive him a ton more sales from people complaining about that.
1: That's a good point where people are like, oh, that's a cheap shot. And they take a screenshot of it and post
0: it. Yeah. And they go on Twitter and they're like, oh, this guy is so insufferable. <laughs>
1: <sighs> this is a quote I texted to, to my brother yesterday from it. Uh, we'll get, to, I mean, this is like later on in the book, but I'm just going to read the quote because it's hilarious. He goes. I surmise that if we put those people wanting to help in the State Department on paid vacation to do ceramics, pottery, or whatever low testosterone people do when they take a sabbatical, it would be great for peace. so <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> That's just a sampling of the uh, of the kinds of insults that are in this book. But yeah, I think you're right. Like it's probably some anti fragile kind of like. Thinking on his part, which is like the more I do this, the more popular the book gets. He's
0: got that section in Antifragile where he talks about the Ayn Rand effect, which is that like the more the more you piss off people with your book, the more popular the book is going to be. And like I just imagine in my head that as he's writing that chapter, he's like, oh, wait a second. Right? Like, I I need to do more of that. (laughs) And that's when he started getting angry on Twitter.
1: Which is why on Twitter, he always, on Twitter, he will always tag the other person. Yeah. Yeah. uh, That he's shitting on. Yeah.
0: But to his credit, he only shits on other people like at his weight. He doesn't punch down.
1: That's true. Yeah. I think he gets like maximally pissed off when he sees someone getting like more credit than they deserve. Yeah. And I think that's like, and, but it's usually above him or at his weight. You're right.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that he actually has something about that in this book that like you should call people out on their bullshit, but you shouldn't like needlessly harass people who are below you.
1: That's like the picture thing, right? When he was talking about taking pictures of people. Oh, yeah, exactly. That was funny. Yeah. All right. Should we dive in <laughs> so we should here?
0: Hop in. So the introduction of the book is mostly about broadly defining the ideas of skin in the game. And it kind of like lays the foundation for a lot of the tangents that the other books later on take off into.
1: Right. And I think he, I mean, it was a pretty long intro for the size of book that this was. I think
0: it's the longest book or close to
1: it. It might be. yeah. Yeah. I love one particular quote. He starts off, I think, with a lot of kind of talk about the difference between sort of academia theory. Right and real life and i love this one quote it says it's like a, it, this is a yogi bearism but he says this is the quote uh or the quotation that <laughs> correct me last <about> time <laughs> i think that's right and now i'm gonna remember that forever uh in academia there's no difference between academia and the real world in the real world there is <laughs> and i love that right because it's like kind of like i mean you've taken an econ class right or you took econ in college yeah at all yeah yeah It was always like the assumptions were very sort of fake, if you remember. I took macro and micro, and I always remember being like um – This seems like oversimplified.
0: Yeah, well, that's sort of, I think, the popular criticism, particularly of macroeconomics now, is that it assumes that everyone behaves as rational actors. But using a theme that comes up a lot in this book, and actually in Gold, Lusher Bach as well, is that you can't deduce the behavior of the system from the behavior of the individuals in the system, right? Like studying an individual ant tells you nothing about how an ant colony works. And so microeconomics, you know, roughly based on rational actions of people in a market like kind of works sometimes for figuring things out, but then taking that whole like rational actor hypothesis and extrapolating it to the macro level just doesn't work, which is why macroeconomics has basically had like zero useful predictive power. It's all just like back explaining things, kind of like narrative fallacy style which is I think why he's so critical of it.
1: It would be like the equivalent of trying to figure out how like the world operates by examining one human being. Y- yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like if you had your sample size was one human being and then you had to extrapolate how everyone operated, like it just, I mean, there's so many emergent behaviors, right? Like you would never be able to predict cities
0: right. when you look
1: at one human being.
0: Well, and I think the perfect example too is just like, you'll never understand the brain by studying the neuron. Cause the neurons literally a binary system. It's just on or off. And yep. it's like getting very familiar. Familiar with binary will not tell you how like a modern computer works either right it's just that's a good point yep it's a little, there's uh it, what's it called emergent complexity or emergent properties of the system as the complexity increases so and that's part of the problem that he talks about too and i guess this is more later on but it's relevant to the academia aspect which is that the like psychological studies of how somebody behaves in a room like devoid of all other stimulus is just like completely useless because in the real world you never are acting like that right you're never actually making the trade-off between flipping a coin for getting 200 or losing 100 because you have all the other money in your life that you were thinking of in that moment and like how that hundred and two hundred dollars relates to that so it's like the distinction between what academics are talking about and you know what they say we can know about the world is very different from what actually works like in the streets
1: yeah and i think this is also related to that whole teaching birds how to fly idea yeah exactly because it's like yeah i mean academia i think in general like i mean this isn't always true i would say maybe there's some you know like it seems like in physics and stuff like that like there are things that come out of academia that are real. As far as I know, I mean, I'm not a physics expert by any means, so. but at least from my interpretation, it seems like some things come out of that. But it seems like, I mean, in biology, like pharma especially, and uh, I mean, obviously in business, like everything kind of comes outside of academia and then academia comes up with theories to explain things that happen.
0: Yeah, the engineers figure stuff out and then people in like engineering departments and stuff explain it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like it was like it's like now, I mean, even just from a business example, right? It's like the whole sort of like distributed, decentralized, like sharing economy business model is like so mainstream. Like everybody, I'm sure business schools are like, I obviously haven't gone to business school, but I'm like 100% sure they're like talking about it all the time. But like that's only after the companies already existed. Like it's not like they were talking about this before the companies existed and then someone applied that theory. build
0: uber yeah exactly the example that i really like too is that ancient architects knew exactly how to build houses and arches and buildings without being able to explain the mechanical engineering and physics and stuff behind it right the like the architectural engineering came later and in some ways made the system more fragile because you could like precisely calculate you know the necessary load of each of your like bearing pillars or whatever i'm not an architectural engineer so i apologize to anyone whose terminology i'm butchering but once you could do that math you could push the limits a lot more unlike you know kota Hammurabi style where if you build a house and it falls on someone you have to be put to death Right. In those cases, you're not going to try to cut corners with, you know, your AutoCAD projections.
1: Yeah. Or you had to like, I think even in like Victorian times, if you were designing a bridge, you had to like sleep under it.
0: Yeah, exactly. You'd sleep under it while, well, I know this was the Roman practice was you had to lie under the bridge while they drove chariots across it.
1: Yep. Yeah. The bridge better be freaking amazing That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to my dad about that for pharma. There's a, a book called uh, "Happy Accidents." Have you read that? No. Uh, it's a pretty good one. It's like kind of like how a lot of the drugs that you know are actually useful, like penicillin and you know a bunch of other things, were kind of discovered by accident. But one thing that struck me in that book is how many times those like scientists or people who were developing those drugs tested it on themselves oh yeah like the guy who figured out that ulcers was caused by a bacteria that's a great story <laughs> yeah he like drank this bacterial solution and then used his cure that he came up with to solve that but it was like tested on himself yeah
0: and then he i think he got the nobel prize for it too
1: yeah yeah he did i mean that's skin in the game though right there right it's like If this doesn't work, I'm like giving myself ulcers or some other horrible disease.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, it's just like, I mean, that's skin in the game. And I, I think that's actually a good segue to kind of the other big point of this book, at least that I took away, which is that in order to evolve and improve, you need to have skin in the game because you need to take the scars of being wrong. Yeah. So I think, what did he talk about? There's one quote from the Greeks. Yeah, it's like effectively, I guess, translates to guide your learning through pain. It's kind of like what we've talked about a lot on this podcast, right? It's like kind of like the iterative approach to learning. And then nature kind of operates the same way in t- for evolution, too. Yeah. So and I think that's like a big theme here. It's like a big underlying theme for the whole book, I would say.
0: Well, and he criticizes like the venture capital entrepreneur demographic for that, too, where he's basically saying that if you're going the like Y Combinator VC funded startup route, you're not a real entrepreneur because you're just getting somebody else. Yeah,
1: because you're building for the exit. Well,
0: and you're getting somebody else to put their skin in the game instead of putting your own in it's like you're not putting your own money on the line or anything you're just getting other people to take on all the risk and then if you fail like literally nothing bad happens right you've got no penalties or you know fear of failure there it's not true skin in the game or true risk taking really it's like it doesn't really have a term for anti-skin in the game does he i didn't find a good one uh he says rent seeking yeah i guess rent seeking is a good one The one thing I did like about anti-fragile is that he had a good term, the fragilistas, right? Right, I love that one. I feel like we didn't get a great term like that this time, but rent-seeking is a good one. There's
1: the IYIs.
0: Oh yeah, and IYIs. And rent-seeking, by the way, the way he defines it is uh, trying to use protective regulations or rights to derive income without adding anything to economic activity, not increasing the wealth of others. I feel like that term gets thrown around a lot, but you don't get a definition that often.
1: Yeah, and I guess maybe by that definition, then the the sort of like Silicon Valley entrepreneur thing doesn't fit under that definition because it's not like they're using regulations. It's like they're getting someone to give them the money.
0: I think if we broaden it though, it does. Like,
1: Yeah, I would say that was one area though where I think he might not fully understand the whole like BC ecosystem because by that definition, like being a trader, you know, if you're trading on behalf of a fund, which is what he was doing... (laughs) right? It's like someone else's capital, too.
0: Well, but he criticizes a lot of general traders as well. Remember, he says that hedge funds are better because they actually have like owner's capital in the game, whereas most like floor traders are just trading other people's money. And I got the sense that when at least for later in his career, he was trading a lot of his own money as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's
0: true. And he did eventually start a boutique hedge fund.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely true, like later in his career. But like early days, he definitely wasn't doing that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, you know, every writer like obviously gets blinded by their own like there's recency bias right so i'm sure he like i'm sure he's like mostly paying attention to his most you know <laughs> the later years of his trading experience but yeah I'm, i like that point that he does make about hedge funds because there's a lot of like complaint you know in general in society about hedge funds like that they're a big problem but like after you view it through skin in the game lens it's actually probably the least like the least bad finance model that's out there
0: yeah exactly
1: because there's not really much systemic risk right i mean there there could be but like It's not depositor money that's put into it. It's usually, as you said, the owner's money. Well,
0: it's the owner's money and the money of other like uber wealthy people. Right. (laughs) You're not having like, you know, grandma and grandpa buying into Bridgewater.
1: Or buying into like Bitcoin.
0: (laughs) <laughs> well, no, they are buying into Bitcoin. And that's why the SEC is going to crack down on it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> The search volume around everything related to like how to buy Bitcoin, how to buy Ripple is like getting stupidly high. So you know that it is not just sophisticated people looking for that anymore.
1: Yeah, no, and I'm sure there's a lot of like predators looking to take advantage of that. But um, that said, there are like good people in the space too. So Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm sure there's like, it's like any industry, right? There ends up becoming vultures once it's clear that there's money to be made.
0: Well, and that's been the problem with all of the like shady ICOs that are now getting investigated by the SEC is basically just stealing people's money and running off with it and like committing securities fraud. So yeah. Bad news. That's a perfect example of rent seeking. It's trying to make money while actually doing nothing of value.
1: Right. Whereas, I mean, there are some coins, like the one you were talking about, I think, last week, uh Gilgamesh coin. Oh, uh, yeah. Gilgamesh. Like, that actually sounds like they're trying to do something using this technology. And, like, that's a totally different thing.
0: Yeah. Incentivizing knowledge sharing and rewarding stuff like this, where you, you know, condense other people's learning and knowledge and, like, share with other people. It's kind of cool.
1: Yeah. And I think, I mean, taking one other step back for this book, like, I think one thing about this book that is actually similar to anti-fragile is that you can use skin in the game as like a lens through which to look at life. Yeah. Just like anti-fragile, right? Like, I don't know. I think we talked about this on the episode, but it's like, once you read that book, you start looking at everything as like fragile or anti-fragile. Right. And then after, I mean, you know, if you weren't so familiar with the concepts of skin in the game, after reading this book, you'd probably start looking at like, well, that person's giving advice, but like, do they actually have any skin in the game or is their advice like penalty free if they're wrong?
0: Exactly. Yeah. He's got that quotation that you should avoid taking advice from someone who gives advice for a living unless there's a penalty for their advice. Right. That's like a really good heuristic. Yeah. Take a shot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to take a sip of my coffee. Unfortunately, not mushroom coffee. Not mushroom coffee.
0: Uh, Well, maybe you should go to foursigmatic.com slash think and get some mushroom coffee.
1: I should. I really should. I will as soon as we get off of this podcast. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. You could also go to perfectketo.com slash think and get some MCT oil powder to mix in with it. Are you are you having some this morning? I, I'm i not. I still need to get my mushroom coffee as well. We've been out for a couple episodes now. It's unacceptable.
1: Yeah, this is not good. Hopefully our quality hasn't gone down. Yeah, seriously. That mushroom coffee gets you going.
0: We'll have to switch back to wine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just, just start drinking wine at 10 in the morning.
1: Yeah, We'll definitely need that for the uh, the punishment episode. Nah, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little preview for a future episode, people.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay, so anything else in the intro we should touch on before we move on?
1: Uh, I like the... I think we've touched on this, but so I'm going to just say, use this quotation anyway. Um, Replacing the natural, that is, age-old processes that have survived trillions of high-dimensional stressors with something in a peer-reviewed journal that may not survive replication or statistical scrutiny... Is neither science nor good practice. Yeah, yeah, and I think like he definitely talked about that in antifragile, like that type of thing. But I mean, uh, it bears a, it's a point worth repeating for sure because I think it is another thing that lays the groundwork for the rest of this book is that like things that have you know survived stressors you know are more robust or antifragile than you know things that haven't. And I think that ties back to skin in the game, where like if you don't have skin in the game, like you can't actually respond to the stressor. So it's still unknown whether it's robust and it's probably not robust, right? Like through, because of the Lindy, Lindy rule, right? Lindy effect, Lindy, Lindy rule. Lindy rule,
0: I think it's the rule, yeah.
1: Yeah, because of Lindy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, because it hasn't had the opportunity to go through those stressors It's not going to be it's very likely not Lindy compatible because most things are not.
0: Yeah. Well, and also he makes this point later on, too. But a lot of these ideas, you know, the peer reviewed journal ideas coming out of like academia. Right. What works in academia doesn't work in the real world. But also the people recommending it don't have any kind of like skin in the game for their recommendations. Whereas these ideas that have lasted thousands of years the reason they would have lasted that long is that the people recommending them, like the, if the ideas survived, then the people recommending them had some like need to or like the person who was recommending them had to be able to continue being taken seriously, which means they had to continue giving good recommendations. Right. It was probably a priest or a shaman or a leader or something. And so if they were giving bad recommendations, they would no longer be the leader. Somebody who did give good recommendations would. And so over, you know, a few thousand years, those good ideas are going to distill down into kind of these like timeless principles, right? Like golden rule. There's a reason that's in every religion, right? There's probably some evolutionary rational, like truth to it, that it survived. And so any of these other old ideas that have survived, it's because the people recommending them had like to continue proving themselves, right? So it it, it worked. It must work.
1: Yeah, and especially it works for the group, right? Like, that's the other thing. Like, the group survived. So the group that has that shared mythology or that that rule is more likely to survive, too. So there's definitely something there. Yeah, I think that that probably sums up the intro. Uh, I love how he dislikes people who can write a convincing business plan,
0: because I do too. (laughs) Uh,
1: It's like, I never found that to be useful. It's like, build your business, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. Go make sales. Yeah. Uh,
1: Especially like the 50 page business plans. This is obviously a tangent, but whatever. It's
0: a way for MBAs to feel useful. Yeah.
1: Or like, I don't know if you ever come across people who like want to start a business, but then are like, they end up spending like months working on a quote business plan.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But uh, like, it's like, you have no idea. Like that plan is just totally made up. Like you have no connection to the ground or on the ground reality. So yeah, I was talking to my brother the other day. There's just some people that we know who are like, have been talking about starting a business for probably four or five years at this point. Oh, damn! Yeah, but are you know they keep coming up with plans, but I don't think they've ever put out a website or like any like never actually tried selling anything.
0: Well, it's a way to procrastinate. Right. It is.
1: I think that's part of it. Cause that's what we came to the conclusion. I think we came to is like, they probably, they like the idea of it, but might not actually like, you know, it's, it's probably like not something they actually want to go do.
0: They like the virtue signaling of saying they're starting a business, but they don't want to actually do the work. Yeah. Which is something we'll get to. It is. I love that chapter. That was cool. Oh yeah. That, that was, I think that was my favorite chapter. I think, or my favorite like book. I'm surprised you didn't say students from Middlebury in that chapter. <laughs> yeah. Well, he kind of did. He oh, he said Amherst. That's just as good. Yeah. <laughs> Amherst is equally make funnable. They just didn't, you know, assault Charles Murray, so they're less in the public eye.
1: <laughs> oh, I love it. All right, should we go to book two?
0: First, look at agency. It seemed like the big point in this book was that you have to be like careful about the advice you take. Yep. Right. Because he gives the example of medicine where laser surgery versus radiation therapy for cancer treatment. And he's basically pointing out that radiation therapy you know, is toxic to the patient and the cancer. And even though radiation therapy has a better five year outcome, it has a worse 20 year outcome because you're more likely to get other cancers. So doctors may prescribe the radiation therapy over the laser surgery because it makes them look better because they're judged on five year survival rates. Whereas what's better for you could actually be the laser surgery, since if you make it past the initial hump, you've got like the longer life expectancy. And that's kind of the theme of this chapter is, like, knowing when to listen to advice or, like, especially when people are offering you things.
1: Yeah. What are their incentives and also what metrics are they being judged
0: on, too? Yeah, exactly. Like, what is it good for you or is it good for them? And a lot of the time, somebody giving advice is giving advice based on what's good for them, not necessarily what's good for you.
1: Right. Well, it's like, I mean, it, it's funny how, I mean, he, he brings this up, too, right? That like, it's funny how a lot of those, like, classic sayings are, uh, you just kind of get these points across so, like, concisely. Like, it's, one, it's like never ask a barber if you need a haircut, right? right. Like, like, you're. It's obviously in the barber's interest for you to to get a haircut, whether or not you need one. So they're always going to tell you you need one. Exactly. Or it's like, uh, what's the other thing about consultants? Like, uh, there was forget what book it was that we were looking at, but where there was a quote where the guy said, "Like, I've never seen a consultant's report end with anything other than you need more consulting services." Think <laughs> yeah. it was Charlie
0: Munger. It was Munger. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Munger's book. <laughs> yeah.
1: That, I mean, that's literally this thing that you're talking about right here. Yeah.
0: Well, and sometimes it's, you know, it's even seemingly less malicious, like with doctors, where if the doctor tells you just like go home and sleep it off, and then you like drop dead a couple weeks later, they can get sued for negligence. Right. But if they prescribe you anything, then at least they did something, right? And so it's much harder to sue them.
1: And you know, that's really weird. It goes back to what we were talking about with like how I mean, this is obviously going to sound like a huge leap, but bear with me here. Okay. I think it's the same thing underlying that. So whoever made that rule or that collective decision to make that rule that if a doctor prescribes something, they're kind of like off the hook, right? Like their intentions were good, right? And it seems to be the assumption there. So they can't be sued, even though prescribing something might actually have a negative effect, right? Even when you look at when you start looking at side effects and stuff. Um, I think the same underlying like human fallacy is at play there, as is at play when you compare like Nazism and communism. Remember, like, how we've talked about that? So where, like, for communism, it's, like, a crime of, like, um, you know, people say, like, oh, their heart's in the right place. They're at least, like, trying to make the world a better place, whereas, like, Nazis are, like, we can all agree they're, like, trying to make the world a worse place, in our opinion. But, like, we can all, most of us can agree on that. So it's one of those things where it's like, as long as the intentions are good, we tend to forgive the thing, even though it's like if you look at the broader picture and at, you know, what the full effects are of, of these actions, it doesn't matter that your intentions are good. It's like pretty clear that the effects are negative.
0: Exactly. You have to take in the second and third order effects.
1: Yeah, it's like statins, I think, are one of those, right?
0: Yeah, well, statins is like the classic example right now. I mean, it's so absurd that just the number of people who are on them when pretty much all of the research supporting their benefits are like dubious and it's pretty compelling research that they're like just bad. Um, And even like low cholesterol in general as a goal is not a particularly compelling one. It's like, did you see the research that came out in the last few weeks about, uh, they did another meta-analysis on life expectancy and cholesterol level and you have a higher life expectancy if you have a higher cholesterol level as an elderly person oh really yeah people with higher cholesterol live longer i think a big part of it is there's like such a strong correlation between diets that result in low cholesterol and neurodegenerative disease and high inflammation yeah, because that would be what, like a high carb diet? Yeah, it'd be like a very high carb, low, extremely low fat diet. And so if you're not getting any of those saturated fats and things, it like, or if you're getting a fairly high amount of processed carbohydrates, then you're going to have a lot more inflammation. And it seems like the research is getting fairly compelling on this that Alzheimer's is a. Uh, It's like similar to diabetes and also like inflammation driven. And so it's not surprising that we would see similar diets leading to Alzheimer's as leading to diabetes and pretty much all of them are also similar to the low cholesterol type diets it's just like bad news all around. No, no, definitely. But to to Leb's point here, statins are like, you know, it's one thing to tell someone, okay, get on a low cholesterol, you know, get on a cholesterol lowering diet. It's another thing to give them a drug that's just meant to tweak this one variable. Right, exactly. And that's where it gets really bad.
1: Yeah, it's like if the person dies but has like low cholesterol, it would be like, okay, job well done. Yeah. But like-
0: <laughs> yeah. But if they die of say cardiovascular disease and they had high cholesterol and the doctor didn't prescribe them statins the doctor might be tried for you know uh, malpractice even though it's like and this is like one of the crazy things with the whole cardiovascular disease, cholesterol, saturated fat nonsense is that it's such like a complex system. And there have been literally like zero studies showing a direct one to one association. It's all when there's like multiple things, usually also including like obesity and inactivity. Right.
1: Right. Well, it's like what we talked about, I guess, last week right? Which is for the complex systems, right? It's like you can't just tweak one variable and expect, you know, like you don't know what's going to change when you just tweak that one variable. It could be
0: nothing. Oh, yeah. It could be nothing. Or it's like just screws up like everything else in the system.
1: Well, and I like in that article, too, she said that very often when we try to tweak complex systems, we tweak them in the wrong direction. Right. <laughs> like, right. So that could be what's actually happening here. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what's crazy is if you actually probably add up all the people that have died because of this bad advice, Mm -hmm. it probably starts approaching like, you know, it might exceed communism. Yeah. (laughs) Like the number of people that die from heart disease aggregated ever since they started giving this advice about like, you should go on a low, super low fat diet.
0: Well, I think, I mean, you could definitely make that case for the diabetes, obesity epidemic in the US and the whole American Heart Association anti-fat campaign that started in the 60s, right? All of that like Ansel Ames stuff that has probably killed like millions of people at this point between the US and other countries that just sort of followed on with that advice, right? Like I think Mexico has what, like a 70% plus overweight percentage?
1: Yeah, I think Mexico is the highest in the world.
0: Yeah. And a lot of that is just from adopting both our health recommendations and our diet and then combine that with like lower income. And so you have even worse food being used to like do all of this, right? Right. (laughs) There's a reason that like obesity sprung up in the world in the last 50, 60 years. Right.
1: Yeah, that's such a good point too. And like people don't look at that and I'm really surprised it hasn't I mean, obviously, people look at it, you know, some people look at it, but I'm surprised it hasn't been like, so mainstream debunked that like, there's still a lot of people like a lot of doctors actually still like, believe that like, my family in general has borderline high cholesterol if you based off like the normal ranges. And like, anytime any of us go to the doctor, like the doctor will always say, well, like, reduce your maybe eat like fewer eggs. And like, I'm just like, this is not like, like we've none of the other factors, like our blood pressures are good, or not none of us are obese, like, None of us are even overweight. We're all active. Like, we have all these other things. Like, I'm not going to reduce my two eggs a day kind of, like, thing. Exactly. To reduce my not
0: even high cholesterol.
1: You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And there's such a genetic component, too. And it's, like, the real...
1: Yeah, that's what I think. Like, I think it's just our baseline
0: is just higher. Right. Well, and it's also, like, your body needs cholesterol. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big part of, like, cellular regeneration. It's a big part of brain functioning. And
1: testosterone, too.
0: Yeah, and Production. I think all hormone production relies on some amount of cholesterol, testosterone in particular, though.
1: That's why your body makes it. Like, it's one of those things where if you don't consume it in your diet, your body still makes it. Yeah. So, yeah, you must need it. Like, there must be something useful, right, about this content.
0: Actually, something related to that that I'd never thought about before until somebody else pointed it out. And, like, there's no way that we would know this, right? But you can kind of get a sense of it by reading, like, accounts of just historical health and, like, or I guess, like, historical life. I running was never really a thing until like 50 60 years ago Right, like people didn't go running to like stay healthy like nobody needed to do that because you just ate a pretty good diet and you know you were more active too you had like some sort of job and stuff where you're walking around, but... Probably lifting some heavy things. Yeah, I mean, the example in particular that I heard is, like, women, right? Like, housewives were never overweight, and you didn't have to, like, go running and, like, do yoga three days a week and all of that because everyone was just, like, eating better. And it's, like, the charts on women's dress sizes over time. Have you ever looked at those? No, I haven't. It's really interesting because it's, like, every five or six years, they change the sizes to make them appear smaller, Hmm. So it's like today's two is like an eight from the 60s. So you'll like occasionally see this thing like, oh, well, you know, Marilyn Monroe was beautiful and she was a size eight. And it's like, well, yeah, but a size eight is today's like size two or size zero because they keep changing the dress sizes as people become more and more like generally overweight. So
1: it's really hard to compare across eras like that.
0: Very hard to compare across eras. And it was just so much more normal back then to just like be like a healthy weight without having to like do all this crazy activity stuff. And I wonder where the like activity to counteract it came from. Uh, I guess it was, that was probably part of the propaganda, too, that it was just like an activity thing, not a diet thing.
1: Oh, well, we've talked about that, I think, in the Emergence of Doubt. Yeah. Yeah. It's like definitely in part by sugar companies, like by sugar companies, I mean like Coca-Cola companies like that, where it's like, okay, well, you know, it's a mix of diet and exercise, which is like, it's one of those things that has like a kernel of truth to it. Like, yeah, you movement and what you do all day definitely has an effect, but like it's still mostly diet. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's one of the, it's like the smoking thing, right? It's like not everybody is going to get lung cancer, but that doesn't mean it's like not going to make it more
0: likely. Exactly. People who get lung cancer most likely, smoked right
1: yeah but it's like it's that idea of taking that kernel of doubt basically and uh just blowing that out of all sense of proportion yeah epic tangent there
0: yeah yeah it was a good tangent but still relevant to this because what Taleb closes out the agency chapter with is you know at least related to medicine is that kind of like and this is what I've started doing too is just avoid treatment when you're mildly ill right when you have any like Little thing, but use medicine for the tail events. Like, if you're gonna die, if you're bleeding out, like, go to a hospital. But right? right. if you have a <laughs> yeah. cough or, you know, a runny nose or something, like, drink some tea and chill, right? Get some sleep. Like, that also really helps. Exactly. Exercise, go to the temple and pray instead of going to the doctor.
1: Yeah, well, there's no down risk of that, right? That's one thing we've talked about.
0: Yep. Yeah, I think we. Yeah, I guess we should explain that one, right? Like the going to the temple and praying for your disease to go away is better than the doctor in like 95% of cases.
1: Especially low risk things. Especially low risk. Like if you have like a cold.
0: Exactly. If you have a cold, you know, like a stomach ache or something, then yeah, that's a safer bet. But if you got shot, right, you should go to the doctor.
1: Right. Yeah. And just to like elaborate a little more is like if you have like a cold, you're not going to die from it unless you have some major immune, like compromised immune system or something. But most of us will like not die from a cold. So the thing is, though, if you go to a doctor and they prescribe you something, anything they prescribe has a side effect. And even though even if that side effect is rare, like if you get that side effect, it's like, you know, it's a tail risk, basically, as Taleb would say. Whereas like, if you just go take a nap, like you're not going to die from your nap, like there's no chance of dying. (laughs) from nap. Exactly. Yeah. Or if you go to the temple and pray, right? Like you're not going to die at the temple, you might let's say the net effect, just for sake of argument, let's say the net effect is zero. Whereas taking something for your cold, probably the net effect is not going to improve the rate of of improvement very much, but it, it could have a negative side effect. So your net effect might be negative. And so yeah, I think like, I think that's probably why, like, the praying thing, I mean, okay, this is a very atheistic view, let's say, but that might be one of the reasons why praying became common, like, across all cultures everywhere, right, is, like, just didn't have the negative effect. Especially when medicine was, like, way less sophisticated, not that it's super sophisticated now, but can you imagine, like, getting, like, a minor surgery without, like, antibacterial Tools and like anesthetic and all this. I was gonna say,
0: yeah, like we didn't have anesthesia until the what, 1850s. Yeah, so it's like so all surgery stuff before that was done like just biting a rag. Doesn't sound very fun.
1: Yeah, you weren't getting your wisdom teeth removed at that point. Let's put it that way. Yeah.
0: Plus, it's, it's such an easy sell if you, you know, have a cold or whatever and you go to the temple and you pray and you like do that for three days and your cold is gone. It's like, oh, it worked. It worked. Right? Yep. <laughs> or you, you go for two days and it's not gone and you ask the priest, like, I'm praying and my cold isn't gone. He's like, well, you just need to pray harder and then you pray harder the third day and then your cold is gone. It's like, oh, wow, it worked. Right? It's yep. like, well, it just took three days to go away. But, hey, you know, it's like <laughs> you can confirmation bias the belief in pretty easily.
1: Well, and you probably still got the placebo effect, maybe.
0: Yeah. That's a good point. If your body think it's working. Placebo effect does work.
1: Yeah, which is so weird how it works. But like if you, you know, yeah, your body might have thought it's actually getting something. So <laughs> I'd actually be really curious if there could ever be a study around that or if there has been a study done around that. I mean, although, you know, who knows what the stuff
0: like, if the study would be accurate or not. Placebo effect of praying or placebo effect in general?
1: No, no. Praying. Yeah. Like if you fully believe you know that it does something and then you know that was all you did to try to treat something although i mean yeah i I don't know how you do that study like objectively because everybody comes into it with their own beliefs and level of belief
0: yeah simply knowing that they're in the study would probably wreck it yeah i think taleb would say it wouldn't apply to the real world and taleb would probably
1: say with a high level of confidence that it does do something because of how common the behavior is around the world yeah because
0: of how it's lasted
1: yeah so you just say by lindy you know probably has some effect
0: yeah that's a good point of some
1: sort anyway all right
0: book three that great asymmetry.
1: This is like how the emergent behavior, you can never figure out the emergent behavior from the individual unit, I guess. Yeah. So he uses the ant and ant colony analogy as well, which I think we saw in GEB also.
0: Right, yeah, the ant and ant colony is a great example. And then he kind of goes on to show how it relates to a very small minority having a very large effect on everyone else's behavior. So if you just have like a few vocal people, you know, wanting something, then pretty much everybody else in the group has to change their behavior. The example he gives is the kosher food, right? Yeah, I love that example. Like basically all food that you buy is kosher without you knowing it, unless you're buying, you know, something that has both meat and cheese in it or like shellfish or whatnot. But you can look at a label and almost everything you get in the grocery store and it's certified kosher even though kosher is probably like one percent of the population in the u.s
1: yeah i think he said it's like 0.4 percent of people actually keep kosher in the U.S., it was just tiny so percentage.
0: Yep, but that's enough for it to be worth it for most, you know, brands to just like make their stuff kosher because it costs almost nothing else, and it at least allows them to reach that population as well.
1: Yeah, and I think the key is that well, one, it doesn't cost them very much to it doesn't cost them anything really to do differently. But I think the big thing is that like people who don't keep kosher can eat kosher things and people who eat kosher can only eat kosher things. So by doing it this way, you can hit both sides without having to do two different products. And I think like, When I first heard this concept, so I had read the blog post, you know, Mm -hmm. to be clear, like i had read the blog post, so this chapter wasn't entirely new. But when I first read that blog post, I initially was a little taken aback by the idea. I was like, oh, this doesn't quite make sense. But then when he starts giving the examples, like we've all seen examples of this, like he gives the example of the McDonald's option. Yeah. Right. So he said, when there are few choices, McDonald's appears to be a safe bet. It is also a safe bet in shady places with few regulars where the food variance from expectation can be consequential. I'm writing these lines in the Milan train station and as offensive as it can be to someone who spent all this money to go to Italy. McDonald's is one of the few restaurants there and it is packed. Shockingly, Italians are seeking refuge there from a risky meal. They may hate McDonald's, but they certainly hate uncertainty even more. And that's happened like when you travel or you're with like a group of friends and you can't like one person might want like Thai food, one person might want like, you know, Indian food or something and then like another person wants a burger and it's just like, okay, well, McDonald's is like kind of the, I don't want to say lowest common denominator, but that's the, that's what keeps coming to my head. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I remember when my sister and I were in Paris, I think like the second day she really, really wanted, uh, we like walked by a Chipotle and she really just wanted to get that for lunch because it was like so... We are both so worn out from like trying to make all these other decisions that it was like, all right, well, we can at least just like not think about this one meal for this one day. And like that's going to make everything easier. And and, like Taleb gives the example of getting pizza at a party, right?
1: Yeah, it's such an easy decision.
0: Such an easy decision. It's like that's the one that people are least likely to have any complaint about. So you can just get that. I always kind of had this theory, too, that this is why people go out for happy hour after work is that it's the one activity that nobody loves doing, but everyone's okay with, right? Yes. I don't think anybody loves like standing in a crowded bar and like paying a lot of money to like yell over people, right? It's the thing that everybody else is going to be okay with doing. Whereas if you tell the group like, hey, let's go bouldering after work, right, you're going to get some people into it, some people not into it. And so it's kind of socially, it's a socially riskier proposition,
1: right? Exactly. You know, and I think that's... That's a really good point. And I like, I think, was it this chapter where he had the grid to show how the minority rule works? like the renormalization idea
0: oh yeah yeah yeah. that was cool yeah with the like eight squares yeah i mean we'll have to put an image in the show notes but it's just a kind of like
1: cool way to visualize this effect um yeah he kind of this rest of this chapter i mean he gives a ton of examples of this but i think one area he talks about it i think it was in this chapter where he talks about it for some of the like sjw type of stuff exactly oh he mentioned the merry christmas and happy holidays thing right where he said yeah it only takes a three percent minority for merry christmas to become happy
0: holidays but they He's also saying that if you had like more diversity, people would stop caring again.
1: And I actually think that's a really good point because so most people know this, but like India has a ton of different religions, just like they have a ton of different languages. So there's like Christians, there's they have the second most Muslims in the world, actually behind Indonesia and then Hindus, obviously, for the most part, obviously there is racial tension in different areas. But like in general, people wish each other the other person's holiday. So like, people would say, like, Eid Mubarak for Muslims, even if they're not Muslim. You know, like, people would say, like, happy Diwali for Hindus, even if they're not Hindus. So it's like, it's almost like having that level of diversity makes it more acceptable to do this. And then maybe celeb is saying we're in this like weird middle zone. Yeah. Where yeah, it's like not
0: accepted. Well, and it just like it makes more sense too. It doesn't have to be your birthday to wish somebody else happy birthday. Right? Yeah. That's like, true. <laughs> it's absurd that there can only be like one holiday greeting in the entire country, right? How did that
1: start, by the way? Like I don't know. I've never looked at that. Uh how did that, that start? Who said Merry Christmas was offensive? Was there was there anybody who, who started it? Was it just like a very small minority of people online?
0: Honestly, it was probably the new atheists. Like those people are assholes.
1: Is that like the type of people, like people who are so atheist that it's like a religion?
0: Exactly. Yeah, it's like the 13-year-olds who hang out on Reddit and like berate people on Facebook. And you can imagine that they would go to Starbucks and see like a Merry Christmas cup and then be like, oh, fuck, no, we got to do something about this. Uh, Oh, yeah. And then
1: cause a big stir. And then it's just easier for Starbucks to just not deal with it.
0: Exactly. It's the tyranny of the minority, right? If if 0.1% of your customers are going to start, you know, berating you on Twitter and yelling on Facebook, then you just change your cups, right? Yeah. Like it's easier for them to do that than to stand up for, you know, wishing Merry Christmas.
1: And you know what? It's probably like bringing it back to what's going on this week, right? Like. With the whole dick Sporting Goods, not like raising the age or they did raise the age for gun purchases. Right. That might be a very similar situation where it's like, I'm sure the number of people between the ages of 18 and 21 who were buying guns was so small that for them to like raise the price to 21 probably doesn't lose them any revenue or very much revenue. Yeah. But it gets like the people that do really care about this issue who are just going to stop shopping at Dick's, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just way easier to just change the age.
0: Well, it's also like, and this is the cynical view, is it's a really good marketing move. It is. Because Dix was the first company to like come out and publicly say like, hey, we're changing our rules based on this. Yep. And, you know, now everyone's talking about Dick Sporting Goods, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who was talking about this before?
0: Yeah, no, nobody was talking about Dick Sporting Goods except, like, giggling about their name as you drive by it on the highway, yep. right? Exactly. That was the extent of most of our relationship with that store. But now it was like Aaron Levy, you know, CEO of Box, was on Twitter the other day saying, like, oh, I'm going to go take up fishing and camping now because I want to, like, support this business, right?
1: <laughs> it's, that's, like, a great marketing strategy, too. Yeah. yeah you're right. It's so smart. Yeah, and that's, like, and not to be, like, overly cynical, right? Like, I, I think maybe they're, you know, they're hard. Art might be in the right place, too. But I think like, uh, so like I'm not saying it's not, but I'm just saying like for, for, yeah, you're totally right from a marketing standpoint, it's a great move. And then I also think it could be one of these like tyranny of the minority type of situations where like maybe like 5% of their customers were like, you know, if they don't do this, we're not going to shop there anymore. So it just was just not worth losing those 5% for maybe like, I can't imagine there were that many 18 year olds buying guns for themselves at Dick's. Yeah. There's probably some, but there might be like most of them, let's say people who are between the ages of 18 and 21 are like buying it with their parents' full knowledge. So their parents would just like buy it now. It's like not going to lose them very many sales. Exactly.
0: I think what, and this comes later in more of the virtue signaling discussion, but I think Taleb's response to it, though, would be that if Dix really had skin in the game, they would have made that change without announcing it. Right. That's true. Because That's a good point. by announcing it, you show that you were doing it for the praise and, you know, the virtue and the rewards you get for doing it. Right. If you, you know, if you espouse that you are charitable, right, then you're not really doing charity. And so if they, you know, truly believed in this, they would do it without seeking the like public recognition for it. And or on the flip side, other businesses would stand their ground and continue selling guns to 18 year olds despite any social backlash, right?
1: Yeah, that's actually a very good point.
0: Because that's something he gets to after this is he's saying like this tyranny of the minority is a really bad thing, but a big part of being virtuous is like standing up for your beliefs, even if there's a social consequence for it.
1: I would say I think he would say especially especially if a yeah.
0: consequence for it and he also mentions later too that it's like it's a big part of you know whether or not you are free right you are a free person if you can have unpopular opinions and state them publicly right yeah probably ninety nine percent of the people in the U S can't go on Twitter and say you know something that would be socially dubious like I don't know what's a what's a good example of this. Okay, oh, yeah. I guess like somebody couldn't go, a lot of people would be afraid to go on Facebook and say something like, people who believe they're transgendered are most likely like more towards like schizophrenia right like a mental disorder than like a conscious choice right yep. like if somebody says that on facebook they'd be very afraid of getting like fired or socially ostracized but
1: my example is going to be men and women are biologically different
0: <laughs> i don't think that one counts because i think i think that in the one,
1: mainstream i don't think they would care. like people would be like obviously right but i think yeah if you put that in certain audiences it would be it, yeah like i feel like you Like Facebook, I would actually be worried about saying that.
0: I guess. Yeah. I mean, the problem with Facebook is just like, actually, you know, this is an interesting difference between Facebook and Twitter is that Twitter does not like reward individual angry responses, whereas Facebook does.
1: Right. And also just in general, people I interact with on Twitter are more of like my own choosing. Well, this is going to sound bad, but like I only follow people who like I want to follow. Whereas like on Facebook, it's like everyone you've known ever. And that's not that's not like. No one's forcing me to do that. Like, I could just purge my Facebook friends, but, like, I've never taken the time to do that. Uh, so, it just feels like Facebook its like, all these people who... Maybe I'm just, like, basing it off of, like, the last time I really looked at my feed and there was a whole bunch of, like... There's a dumpster fire of yeah. stuff, so... Well, yeah. the,
0: the joke that I've always... Or, like, not... I guess it's not really a joke. It's, like, a fairly serious explanation, but when people are, like... <laughs> That's just- People, but, are like, you, people are like, why do you people like, why do you use Twitter over Facebook? And I'm like, Twitter's for people that you like, but don't know. And Facebook is for people that you know, but don't like. Right. <laughs> it's like in terms of the interactions you tend to have is a big difference in that sense. So I, I think you're right. And especially if you were in like Silicon Valley area where almost anything that you say that isn't like ultra left postmodernist, like everything is equal, you know, belief can get you in trouble, then you would be afraid of that.
1: Yeah. Um by the way, last thing on this book, at least for me, would be um, this last part where he said about this whole experiment that was done in 93, Oh yeah, where you populate a market with zero intelligent agents, and then they buy and sell randomly under some structure such that a proper auction process matches bids and offers in a regular way. And guess what? We get the same allocative efficiency as if market participants were intelligent. This reminds me of uh, Way of Zen in some ways, too. It's like the whole bottom-up Versus top-down creation.
0: Mm. I forget the word that they can just sort of like chaos can emerge into order, basically. Yeah, basically, yeah. Where it's like you don't need it, and it doesn't market. necessarily mean that there's order at the bottom level. Yeah,
1: yeah. Where it's like you don't need to have. I guess GEB is somewhat like this too. Where it's like it's kind of saying like you don't need to have a sort of top-down creator building market structure for a market to emerge. Which I guess in hindsight is somewhat obvious. It's like otherwise, how would it have emerged? Like, there was no, there was no, like, university professor being like, we should structure the free market this way. It's just like (laughs) the free market was just the, like, it's just the market. Exactly. Yeah. But it was cool to see this, that, like, this kind of experiment was done before. I'd be curious what those parameters were that he's referring to.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, too, because it does seem almost. Well, and it's weird exactly what it's suggesting because in some ways you could interpret it the opposite way, which is that a top-down system works just as well as a bottom-up one.
1: Yeah, that if you structure the things the right way
0: then it can work that
1: could work just as well
0: yeah or it could also just be saying that market actors are not intelligent (laughs) or that like their intelligence doesn't matter like the illusion of control right yeah it's like your your results are going to be the same or not you individually but the market's results are going to be the same whether each person thinks they're behaving rationally or if each person's acting randomly your individual results will vary but the results at the level of the system will be the same yeah that could be part of it too
1: Yeah. And I think the whole market participants being intelligent thing is an interesting point.
0: Oh, you know, actually, this could be another interpretation, which is that the intelligence of the individual actors tells us nothing about the system at large because the system at large is going to work whether or not they're intelligent or not. Yeah. So it's kind of like the leverage points article, right? It's like changing individual parameters in the system does not really change the emergent properties of the system that much. So changing out individual market participants for intelligent or unintelligent agents isn't going to change the emergent properties of the market.
1: That's, I guess, kind of similar to what we talked about last week with the whole, if you change out like the president, right? Like it's still the same system.
0: Still the same system. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the structure would still be the same, but you're just changing the participants maybe for, let's say, a more intelligent participant, but that's not going to change a whole lot.
0: Exactly. The rest of the system is going to be the same. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, uh, I guess the next book, which is Wolves Among Wolves dogs. dogs, I love I this, like this one. one. <laughs> this is if you're at the medium post. This is the one that's driving off of the how to legally own a person. Yep, and he's basically talking about employment. So I'll I'll just read this quotation because I thought it was pretty funny. Um, uh, and he's talking about employees, obviously, and he says by being employees, they signal a certain type of domestication. Someone who has been employed for a while is giving you strong evidence of submission. Evidence of submission is displayed by the employees going through years depriving himself of his personal freedom for nine hours every day. His ritualistic and punctual arrival at an office, his denying himself his own schedule, and his not having beaten up anyone on the way home after a bad day. He is an obedient, <laughs> housebroken dog.
1: Yeah, I think like that really cuts to the truth of the matter.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's that's where he's driving the title of the book, too, is Wolves Among Dogs. Right. Is that you can either like be this wolf running around in the wild and like fending for yourself or you can wear a collar and be taken care of, but not have freedom.
1: Right. And I think like the cool thing is that he does make this distinction of like he has this quote a bit later, which he says, whatever you do, just don't be a dog claiming to be a wolf. Yeah. Right. And it's, I think he's saying like okay, if you you know want to be an employee, like you want that that sort of comfort and security, like know that that's what you're doing and be okay with that. And same thing if you want to be a wolf and like kind of live by what you kill. So meaning if you, you know, aren't able to make it, then you're not going to have anything, right? But there's like there's no one taking care of you. Then do that, but don't be one claiming to be the other. <laughs> Which I think you know there's a lot of these days.
0: Yeah. Well, that's like the I don't know, I think like investment banking types are probably the perfect example of this where it's like super big you know talk and like very braggadocious full of themselves type attitude but you have to like check your email at 11 p.m and work on saturdays and do every single thing that your like md tells you to do right right whether or not you want to whether or not you want to yeah exactly like you can act super macho and alpha but you're like one of the most enslaved employees in the country so right (laughs) but i like that he makes the distinction between that and like trade traders, right? Where traders who are playing with their own money or who are at least like killing their own food are basically left alone by the company to do whatever they want. Yeah. So there are some wolves in traditionally, you know, dog-like businesses. And you probably see this some too with like internal entrepreneurial type groups in large businesses. Yeah. Like I've got a friend who does kind of like data science type work and he's on like a small five person team in PwC. And obviously, like, PwC is a massive business, but this five-person team literally gets to do just whatever the fuck they want um, and, like, study whatever they want and, like, try to figure out anything they want. They have, like, total freedom and all the budget and everything. So they're, like, definitely on, like, the wolf spectrum <laughs> right. in a company that would normally be, like, more doggy.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And it's, it's also interesting once you look at things through this lens, when you see things that companies do. Mm-hmm like Google giving like free food, for example.
0: Yeah, it's a way to domesticate you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's a way to domesticate you. It's funny, I have a good friend in Pittsburgh who's working for Google for a few years at the Pittsburgh office. And he said when he first joined, he was like super jazzed up about the free food and like free breakfast and dinner and all this other stuff. And then he said like after about a year, he realized it's their way of keeping you at work longer yep. because you have to show up earlier to get the breakfast and then you have to save it later to get the dinner. And they get probably an extra two hours a day out of you <laughs> just for your, you know, $15 worth of food.
0: Exactly. Not to mention the dry cleaning in the gym. And I mean, you can even stay in like their Google housing if you live in SF, right? And that's just particularly crazy.
1: Yeah. So they just like they want you to be domesticated, basically. I and mean, it's not there's no other word for it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, Cosette and I were talking about this, too, with Deloitte like giving you like the per diem to spend on food yeah. where you can like go out and spend, you know, X amount of money every day and like get free food while you're working with clients. Like that's a really good way of keeping you liking a job that you otherwise dislike.
2: Yeah, that's so
0: true. it's like it, it seems silly for them to be giving you $50 a day to like pay for all your food when you're already getting a good salary. But viewed through the lens of like keeping you happy with the job, it makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And it also feels like a bonus in some weird ways, even though it's like I don't know. It's like at the end, like you're probably making a lot more than $50 a day.
0: Making a lot more than $50 a day. How so? Well, in your salary Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. So in terms of like a percentage of your income, this is really, you know, not that big of a deal, but it it feels like an extra, you know, an extra bit of like bonus that you get.
0: When something about like gifts and like spending money on stuff instead of getting raw money always feels better for a given amount, right? Yeah, it's weird, but it's so true. Like if you give somebody a $20 bottle of wine, they appreciate that way more than a $20 bill. It's probably because like there's thought that goes into it and, you know, there's some like experience involved, but... Yeah, it's funny how big of an effect that has. It's kind of like the trips, right? Companies that take like, and startups do this too, right? Where you take like the team on a retreat and all that. Like that's a good way to keep people liking the work is if they know they're getting these like two to four free trips each year to somewhere cool. Yeah,
1: that's a good point. Yeah, it just like feels better for the employee than to just get like, think about if you got like, uh, you know, a $500 bonus versus a $500 trip. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. But the $500 bonus, you'd be like, oh, okay. Like, you know, yeah, you'd forget about it in like a week.
0: Exactly. It would wear off much quicker, but the memory of the trip would last a lot longer. Right. I like this point about English manners being imposed on the middle class as a way of domesticating them. Yep. I really, because I, I don't know what made me think of this. I think it was when we were traveling through Asia and it's just such a different style of eating. And mm. it, one that actually makes more sense, right? Where it's like the whole fork and knife, you know, aggressively like cutting up your food at the table instead of getting stuff that's pre-cut and eating it with chopsticks and like eating with your hands, right? Right. All of that felt more natural than the whole fork and knife thing. And, you know, after having that experience, it was like, huh, you know, I feel like the formal table setting style is a way to differentiate yourself from the lower class. Right. Mm. It's like, does this person know how to eat at a table and a way to create kind of like an arbitrary distance between you and the lower class and also between, you know, like you and people from other countries. Right. Right. If in English in America, you're doing this like formal place setting in like France and obviously, like Europe and America versus like Asia, right? It's such a different style of eating that is probably used as a way to like create artificial superiority, right? It's like, oh, don't eat with your hands like the savages or whatever.
1: Yeah, I bet. I think it is used that way. Yeah. So yeah, I think the other thing I liked in this chapter that was pretty interesting was this whole thing about like the suicide bombers. What about them? I thought it was a pretty interesting thing of like how it's kind of a free option right now based on their belief system. Oh, yeah. Where they get... there's kind of like nothing to lose based on the belief system. I think there is objectively, but if you look at the belief system of someone, you know, who would be a suicide bomber, they think they're getting all of this stuff. And then of course, like a lot of times their families are taken care of by the organization. So especially someone who, you know, doesn't have a lot to begin with, it's kind of like, this is like actually a pretty good option, right? Yeah. So he was basically saying like, you need to add, like Taleb is saying that There needs to be some type of financial burden on their families. Exactly. Like in his way of wording, it actually made a lot of sense where he said this is very similar to like war reparations that like Germans still have to pay and, um, you know, for World War Two. And it's like it's meant to discourage this kind of thing from ever happening, you know, again. But yeah, it's interesting that like he brought that up because I mean, I don't know how you would go implement that. Like that would be a lot trickier, but as a kind of like hypothetical solution, it seems like maybe along the right lines to start thinking of.
0: Yeah, finding some way to counterbalance that because it's like, it is true. It's like a really hard thing to balance when you think that your death is only a good thing, right?
1: Yeah, it's like it might be a good thing financially for your family. It might be a good thing for you because now you're going to paradise, right? Right. Kind of like a great option when you view it through that lens. It's like, why would you not do this at that point?
0: Well, I think that's always been the very reasonable fear about like any Islamist government getting nukes, right? Is that at least with the Soviet Union, like the Soviets were afraid of dying. But if you've got like a Salafi Muslim government that is, you know, gung ho on self-sacrifice to get to paradise. Right. You can't really have mutually assured destruction with that government.
1: Right. I mean, it would be like going back to like our Hiroshima episode. It would be like if the kamikaze mentality in Japan, if they had a nuke. Yeah, exactly. Where it would just be like that. Like it's like an honor for them to at least when they had that mentality, it's like an honor for them to have this mutually assured destruction.
0: Well, although I I think the difference is that with the kamikaze mentality, it's the individual sacrificing themselves for the nation. And it's like an honorable thing to do.
1: That's true. So if you had a penalty for your friends and family who would die as a result of your actions, then it it wouldn't like it wouldn't encourage them to do it.
0: Well, but the, the other comparison I'm making is that I think that like a Salafi Muslim government would have no problem sacrificing like the whole nation. Right, that's a good point, whereas like the Japanese emperor wouldn't sacrifice the whole nation to win because it's like you're trying to win for the nation
1: that's true, and they're they're trying to win for the collective, and their win is in this world, it's not like a paradise type exactly thing. that's a good point. that's actually a really big difference, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not even close to being the same thing then. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think so on that one. That was probably the last thing I had on that chapter. Yeah. Book
0: five was pretty interesting. Yeah. Let's hop into book five then. Yeah. Were you good on book four? Or we we could stay on any book forever. We got to move on. (laughs) The last two things I was going to throw in is that using foul language like on social media is a way of sending a signal that you're free, which I thought is kind of like a funny but true example. It just goes back to like, what are you afraid of posting publicly? Right. Are you afraid of like getting fired for your opinion online? It's like, okay, then you don't really have freedom. Right. And then that like the highest status of like free people is usually indicated by voluntarily adopting habits of the lowest class. Right. So I feel like good point. Well, I feel like the best example of this is like the like entrepreneur clothing wardrobe, right? You're not like wearing suits while you hang out in your cafe. You're wearing like jeans and a t-shirt right and jeans are traditionally like working class piece of clothing right and you're wearing like your hoodie and you know you're not like getting dressed up to go to the cafe and yeah
1: exactly i mean obviously like we're not on video right now but i'm in like sweatpants and a t-shirt yeah <laughs> which actually lately like more increasingly like if, especially if i have to eh, i don't know I I i'm fine saying this if i have to just like write or just do something like where it it truly doesn't matter. Like I'm going to be behind a computer anyway, even if I'm on video, like I'm increasingly just wearing sweatpants in the winter.
2: (laughs) Yeah. because
1: like, they feel so comfortable compared to jeans. Jeans are great too. I I love wearing jeans. I mean, I probably mostly wear jeans, but like sweatpants are just so comfortable.
0: Well, it's kind of like what I do when I wake up is I'll wake up and I'll just work in uh, like elephant pants and a tank top for the first three or four hours of the day. And I usually won't get dressed until noon, but I just like I work really well in that outfit. And, you know, if I'm working from the living room, there's no real reason to get changed. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But I think it's also related to like the whole thing that he's saying here where people uh, when you have the freedom, you can like kind of adopt whatever habits you want. It's like, he kind of shows that on Twitter where he he pulls like no punches on Twitter at all. Oh, yeah. So what is his quote for like how he treats Twitter? It's like a bar at 2 a.m. or
0: something. Yeah. He treats it like a drunken bar brawl at two in the morning. And and that's like every now and then you'll see these profiles of him in magazines or newspapers. And the journalist is always like surprised by how nice he is in person. They always mention that in the first paragraph or so, because they'll be like, you know, contrary to his Twitter personality, we actually had like a very nice conversation <laughs> about all this <laughs> stuff. It's like everyone's really surprised that he's nice in person.
1: I would love to hear his drinking stories someday, because like there are some things interspersed in this book too, where he's like, I think there was something where he's like, they've never been so drunk that they broke a chair over someone's head. Or something. Yeah, exactly. But I was like, what story are you referring to right now? Like, I would love to hear that.
0: <laughs> well, he had that great example too in the like virtue signaling chapter where he talks about you know these like upper class people talk about economic equality and you know quality of opportunity but they've never gotten drunk with their taxi driver right
1: yeah that's five that's a great segue oh is that
0: in here yeah yeah so it's like i wonder i wonder if and how often he's actually done that like just started talking with a taxi driver and then they've like gone to a bar and gotten really trashed and like yeah broken tables
1: (laughs) I'd be curious how the taxi driver would get home
0: (laughs) (laughs) he hires another taxi driver it's taxi drivers all the way down
1: yeah exactly (laughs) infinite loop there exactly Uh, yeah I think so that's a good segue into book five which is called being alive means taking certain risks I think, like, he made a really good point about Trump, which I'd never thought of before, which was that, like, the argument that Trump was a failed entrepreneur—there's a quotation from the
2: book—arguments
1: that Trump was a failed entrepreneur, even if true, actually prop up this argument. Even rather have a failed real person than a successful one, as blemishes, scars, and character flaws increase the distance between a human and a ghost. So it's like, he's arguing that people could see Trump more as a real person, almost because he'd (laughs) failed— Um, and wasn't this like perfect person, clearly he's like very far from being a perfect person. So that almost made him more relatable.
0: Well, and that was, I think that's always been a very legitimate criticism of politicians is that they just don't seem like real people, right? They seem like Muppets. Yeah, you you look at some of them in particular, like Marco Rubio, especially during the election where he would just repeat these talking points over and over again, kind of like almost like a robot, right? You just like, there's no real person back there. I think that's why Chris Christie was so appealing in the nominations too, because you could tell he was kind of like talking from his gut for a lot of it. He wasn't just like this automaton. Right. And I think, like, you know, Clinton got a lot of criticism for that, too, is that she came off just, like, way too poised and, like, a robot, right?
1: Well, she wouldn't even do press conferences for the longest time because, like, she just didn't want to take – oh, she did press conferences. She didn't want to take questions for the longest time. Yeah. Because it wasn't scripted. So, exactly. then it's like, okay, well – this is your, you're like an actor then
0: yeah and so for for all of trump's like bullshit you at least knew he was like a real person and he was like as absurd and contradictory as his opinions sometimes were they were like his opinions
1: and they were like you know people like that like in real life yeah exactly he's <laughs> <It's> relatable <laughs> yeah and then the other thing that was a good point is that like a lot of people would throw this uh criticism at him which I- i've done this too which is like okay, like you've, you know, lost a billion dollars, right? Like, I don't know if that makes you such a good entrepreneur, but that wasn't really the point. It's like the fact that he's lost that money and it was his money, not like government money or something. Yeah. Is like very sort of honorable almost when you think about it from another lens. And that's what he's arguing about. People, you know, didn't view the fact that he failed as like a criticism. They actually viewed it as like a plus, like the scars that he took.
0: To be fair, he lost way more of other people's money too.
1: oh definitely definitely. (laughs) he didn't frame it like nobody ever framed it that way though yeah exactly right like no one ever like that was never the criticism that people lobbed at him it would always just be like oh he lost
0: this money lost all this money and it's like oh yeah it was his business right
1: right exactly yeah it wasn't like the bailout kind of thing right like it was a very different well maybe not so much in reality but the way it was framed by both sides it was like you know it was framed as just this like okay he's just a failed entrepreneur and then you know most people i don't think necessarily view that as like, you know, the same thing as like stealing money from people.
0: Well, and it ties into this point Taleb makes later in this book, which is that uh, what people resent or should resent is the person at the top who has no skin in the game, right? Trump at least had skin in the game with his businesses and that his name was on all of it and he was using a lot of his own money. Whereas these like, you know, JP Morgan CEOs who are not risking any of their own money can like destroy the economy and then get a massive bonus afterwards, right? Like those are the people that you should resent. That's like the bad side of wealth. Right. Whereas entrepreneurs who are like risking their own money or, you know, their own reputation and then getting rich off of it, not necessarily Trump, but, you know, others right like Apple is a great example of this. Right. They took extremely little investment capital. Right. I think like only a million dollars in total investment money, if I'm right.
1: I think so. Yeah. I think then the rest was like just debt.
0: Yeah. A lot of it was just like debt. Amazon as well, extremely little. But then you compare that to Uber and they've raised like two billion dollars. Right. Yeah,
1: Multiple billions. Yeah. Yeah. That's like very different. Even Instacart, I saw as of yesterday, I think Instacart Cart has raised a billion capital, which is like crazy. That's insane. So much
0: money. Yeah, and they're gonna get destroyed by Amazon too.
1: Yeah, or they might just get bought by Amazon. We'll see. Maybe. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like really interesting, like how differently those things are. But um yeah, the the thing that I really like here, I mean, the kind of the summary of this, right, is that like the Fat Tony wisdom, which is. Uh, they'll always do more than you talk and proceed talk with action, right? It's like, mm. kind of like don't pretend kind of relates to the cab driver thing, where it's like, if you want to talk about, you know, equality, and like economic equality, and all this stuff, it's like, you should actually know some people who aren't in your socioeconomic class, <laughs> which I think <laughs> yeah. is a great criticism. And we talk about this with the Middlebury thing, right? It's like, a lot of people will like the idea and abstract of like, too many spots in college are for, you know, straight white men, but then they are straight white men. And Don't give up their seat.
0: Yeah, well, he's got some good examples of that in book six too, where he gets more into the like whole virtue signaling stuff. Yeah, the thing that surprised me in this chapter that I never thought of before, but that is like a great point is the whole, like, what does income equality or like, you know, roughly that term mean. And he makes this point that you might think that there's better income equality in like a French system, right, where it's more egalitarian, but only 10% of the wealthiest 500 American people or dynasties were so three. 30 years ago, whereas more than 60% of the French list are heirs, and a third of the richest Europeans were also the richest centuries ago. Right. Well,
1: that's the best thing about America in general. Yeah. I think, in my opinion, is like, I mean, Okay, who's the richest person in America right now? Jeff Bezos, probably. I think so, yeah. Like he hasn't been rich for generations.
0: No, he's been rich for like ten years.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Bill Gates. He wasn't. I mean, his family was like they weren't like poor, but they were definitely just like upper middle class.
0: And then like now he's probably one of the top five richest people in the world. Exactly, Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. Yeah, it's like a lot of these people. It's like there's no dynastic wealth really, and in some ways that it's like it's better to have a greater disparity of income levels if there is a greater chance of everybody moving between those levels.
1: Well, and that's the thing about Bezos, right? Bezos, like in theory, might not be in the top five next year, like Amazon stock might not stay where it is. So he has skin in the game, <laughs> like he has, he's facing, you know, he has the risk.
0: Exactly. And people can easily exit the top 1% and people in, you know, the bottom 10% can easily get into the top 1%, like, oh well, not easily, but it's, it's available, right? Yeah. Whereas in like a more European system, it's much harder to move between levels,
1: His example of Florence was really interesting. Yeah,
0: exactly. The same handful of families have kept the wealth for five centuries in Florence. Yeah. It's wild.
1: And I I like how like this is a really good solution. And I think, I mean, this pops up in America. Like it's I don't know if it's a new thing in America or it's just a constantly dynamic system Mm -hmm. where there are like industries that are kind of like outliving their usefulness. Like, I I mean, I would argue uh, a lot of distributors in many different fields, not just, you know, I obviously interact with beer distributors, but there's a lot of distributors in like the clothing industry or like, you know, anything like food even, right? It's like a lot of them are trying to create almost rent seeking laws to mandate their use. So like for beer, that's been the case since prohibition, but you're starting to see like efforts in other industries too, where like I, actually Tesla was a great example. Tesla wanted to this this whole fight took place a few years ago, but Tesla wanted to own their own car dealerships. Doesn't sound like it's too shocking, right? I mean, when you hear about that, you're like, okay, what's wrong with that? But like, in most states, they were actually not allowed to do so. Yeah, it had to be a separate entity that owns. the They're still not. Yeah. Like there's some states now where they have them, but in a lot of states, they can't. And they can't sell their car. They, They used to not be able to do it at all. Now I think they can do it selectively is sell their cars online. Right? Like, why would that be illegal? Like, <laughs> You know, but it, that's like a, a great example of like people trying to put up these barriers to exiting from the 1%, right? It's yeah. like they're in the 1%. You might own like the most popular car dealership in the DC area, for example. You want to put up all these barriers so that can never not be the case. Exactly. So that's like where people would resent wealth, in my opinion. I think that's where a lot of the resentment would come, where it's like you have these unfair advantages that keep you there. Whereas like just getting there is not really like anything to resent, in in my opinion, at least.
0: Yeah, it's got to be more focused on preventing any way for people to make themselves completely immune to falling out of the top percentage.
1: Well, and outliving their usefulness, I think, is the main thing, right? It's like it's like if we all keep using Amazon and we're all customers of Amazon, I don't think any of us have like a actual problem with Bezos being rich. I think where we have a problem is if there was like a law that said you have to use Amazon. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And none of us wanted to use it. Like if if you and I were like, man, I hate Amazon and I have, but like the government makes me use it. I would really resent the fact that Jeff Bezos is the richest person. right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we voluntarily use their service. And so it's like, he deserves to be rich. Right. I mean, at that point. Exactly. Yeah. He's made something useful.
0: All right. Should we hop into book six?
1: Uh, Let's just see. Was there anything else on? Oh, the only, there was one other thing for book 5 I liked how he said, so you can define a free person precisely as someone whose fate is not centrally or directly dependent on peer assessment. Yeah. And I think that was great because that would be like, the thing I put in my notes was like, like okay, so in academia, you're very often judged by your peers, it seems like. I mean, I, I haven't been an academic, but that's from everything I've seen about academia, that's how that world works. Right. Whereas right. like, I mean, it's not like when you start a business, you're not
0: judged by other business owners. Yeah, you're judged by the market and customers.
1: Yeah, it doesn't matter like if what I think your business does is like bullshit or not or it's useful. It doesn't it like doesn't matter, right? right? Like what you think of another business, it like matters what their customers think.
0: Well, that's probably part of the problem, too, with the SJW virtue signaling type stuff that goes on is that it seems to be most prevalent in communities that heavily rely on peer assessment. Right. Like college is entirely driven by peer assessment because it's like the main thing you care about while you're there is sort of like your popularity and status amongst your peers. And then, you know, like aside from grades, probably more so than grades. And then like in tech jobs, right, you're very concerned about your status in the company and your status among like your peers in the company, your direct report and all of that. So in those areas, it's easiest for this tyranny of the minority type stuff to thrive because it's so dependent on peer assessment. Whereas I think we see amongst our friends who are, you know, self-sufficient, there's like much less of that tyranny of the minority obsession with peer approval type stuff going on because it just doesn't really matter for your security anymore.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's like, I mean, that's a pretty good way of summing it up the way he described it, where it's like your fate is not determined by what your peers think of you. And I think that's like, It's really hard to put into words, but it's almost like a great way of seeing if someone's sort of like feet are on the ground or if they're like actually sort of in connection with the on the ground reality. Right. Like, you know what I mean? It's really hard to describe this, but like, okay, if you're a business owner and your fate depends on how your customers think of what you're doing, right? Like, you're obviously in connection with reality. And if you're like a writer, you know, you write a blog or you have a book. It's what your readers think that really matters, not what like I think Taleb has been doing this a lot or talking about this a lot. Right. It's not what like the book reviewers, journalists think about your book. It's like what the readers think. Right. So, yeah, I think there's like it's really hard to put into words, but it's like just connection with reality is kind of the thing I keep coming back to.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Should we dive into book six? Let's dive into book six. All right. Ooh,
1: this is the whole like looking the part.
0: Yeah, I loved this section. I'd never thought about it quite this way, but it makes so much sense once he articulates it. Yep. That like, basically, if you have the choice between two people who are kind of equally qualified for a role, you should choose the one who looks less the part because they would have had to overcome more challenges to get to that point than the person who just like, you know, breezed their way through.
1: Yeah, you know, this was a really interesting, this is like a very different example than Taleb talks about. But I was talking about this book with my brother two days ago, and we were talking about quarterbacks in the NFL. And uh, there's all these like sort of common, you know, I'm going to use like air quotes, but common sense advice that you always hear about, like, what makes a good quarterback. And one of those things is height. People say like, oh, like the best quarterbacks are like 6'6", 6'7", because you got to see over the offensive line, which is usually Uh, 6'7". 6'6", or 6'7", is like a typical, you know, maybe anywhere between like 6'4", and 6'8", let's say, is the offensive lineman. So you want to be able to see over that, right? And so that's kind of like the common sense approach. But then if you look at like the top five quarterbacks... There's probably only like one and arguably two that fit the mold of like your common sense, typical top quarterback. And historically, too, there's all these like great quarterbacks who just didn't look the part for lack of a better word. Yeah. And yeah, and that's why you have like, I mean, in my opinion, at least that's why you have like every year you have like quarterbacks who come out out of college who really very much look the part like they have the build, they have the height, they have like the arm strength. But then they end up sucking in the NFL. And it's like, that's what I was thinking about when I was reading this. I was like, it actually makes so much sense. Because the guys who look the part probably ever since they've been playing have been sort of like, they've had the easy way. Whereas the ones who like didn't look the part have really had to like break through a lot of barriers and are almost like stronger for it. Yeah, almost. They are stronger. They are stronger for having gone through (laughs) it.
0: Yeah. Well, and he, he makes that point, too, that like Ivy League degrees and stuff can kind of be a negative signal in those cases, because if you have two fairly equally qualified people for a role, the one who has like the Yale degree or whatever is probably the less good candidate to hire because they have had an easier time appearing qualified for that role than the person who like went to a state school, but, you know, worked really hard and doing a bunch of things on the side to like get to the same point.
1: Right. Weren't you saying something similar when you were looking at hiring?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, when I when I look at hiring, I don't want to hire people from Ivy League schools or people with high GPAs. They're both bad signs to me, Hmm. mostly because it's like one I one if somebody has a really high GPA, it means they don't know how to like do stuff besides what they're told to do, which seems like a bad sign. They aren't like working on things outside of school. Yeah. And two, it's like, I don't know. I just think that the Ivy League mentality brings a lot of baggage with it of, you know, like entitlement and, you know, kind of like what you deserve and all of that. And it's just like not something that I want to deal with. (laughs) Yeah. Like, obviously, there are exceptions, but uh, it's just like the top tier of privilege is not going to be like a great employee mentality. Usually,
1: careful, man, your sister's gonna get pissed.
0: <laughs> I like this example about food a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where and you know the the point that he makes is that food gets better through tiny variations from Sicilian grandmother to Sicilian grandmother. It doesn't get better with this like you know absolutely insane what's the restaurant in chicago the the really crazy one where you like walk in and there's no menus and no mater D and uh. They, like, break all the food on the table and, like, all this crazy shit. Anyway, his point is that, like, that's not making food better. That's just, like, random experimentation, right? Most people enjoy burgers more than filet mignon, but you know, we've been convinced that filet mignon is better because it's more expensive and harder to get. Right. Yep. And that's kind of its own form of like virtue signaling in a way where it's like, oh, you know, I can afford to eat filet mignon like I'm better than somebody who eats a burger.
1: Oh, there's definitely some of that.
0: Yeah. Or it's like, oh, it's better to go to this $200 fancy restaurant with no plates than it is to go get like a slice of pizza. But the pizza is much more enjoyable.
1: Yeah. It's like he says uh, he's like, I'm certain that if pizza were priced at $200, the people with corks plugged in their (laughs) behinds lining up for it. (laughs)
0: But it's too easy to produce, so they opt for the costly. And pizza with fresh natural ingredients will always be cheaper than the complicated crap. But one thing this section reminded me of is I heard somebody say this on a podcast and uh, I didn't totally get it. And now I think I do. Is he was saying that whenever he goes to a really good steakhouse, he always gets the burger because he he knows he'll enjoy the burger more than most of the steaks. And it will be just an absolutely amazing burger, right? Yeah, because the
1: quality of their meat is so good.
0: Quality of the meat so good. They're probably going to spice it really well. They're going to cook it perfectly, but it's going to be half the price and more enjoyable. And so now that I've heard this, I'm kind of like, oh, I should just be getting the burgers at these places. I'm going to do that. Because I was like, you know what? It's right. He's right. Like, I enjoy a good burger much more than a good filet mignon, like a really good filet. It's almost like you're impressed that they made it good. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good point. Like a burger is just default good.
1: The only exception is I like, I totally agree with the filet, but like I am a sucker for a good ribeye, like a nice fatty, really fatty ribeye. Is,
0: like, the one I was going to say sure. is uh, like carne asada. Yeah, I love carne
1: asada too.
0: I'll make carne asada and what I do is I'll put it in a Ziploc with grapeseed oil, jalapenos, cilantro, lime, chili powder and like marinate Any it. Kettle and fire bone broth. Maybe a little bone broth. Yeah, throw that in there too. <laughs> fire.com slash think. Yep, kettle on <laughs> fire.com slash thing. Uh, but you marinate that for like two hours and then you like slowly bake it in the oven. And it's just like the juiciest, most delicious, most amazing steak ever. Like I've never had a better steak in a restaurant than that.
1: That sounds incredible. <laughs> it, it, it really is.
0: And you, you do it with skirt steak, so it's not too expensive.
1: Right, exactly. I gotta try
0: that. Yeah, That's that, that one I would definitely say is better than like a burger, but I've never had like stay quite that good in a restaurant. It's like when, when, we, when I was living in SF with Adil, Adil had what he called the In-N-Out Index, which was, will this meal taste better, especially relative to the cost, than going to In-N-Out? Right, because it's like I know I can go to In and Out and get a double double for five dollars and be incredibly happy. So, is it worth it for me to spend like thirty bucks on this fancy meal when I could get you know two double doubles and be much happier?
1: That's a really good way to think.
0: Yeah, it's not necessarily a great mentality for you know long term health, but. <laughs> Uh, well, well, Cosette and I have a similar thing in New York, which is like the Chipotle index. Right? right. Yep. It's like, is this meal gonna be better than Chipotle? Like, especially relative to the price? And in, in a lot of cases it's not. So it's like, all right, fuck it, we'll just get Chipotle, right? It's an easy decision tool, but it's weird when you feel the pressure to get the like fancy meals and the fancy expensive stuff. Uh it's definitely this way with wine too, right? there's so much good wine in the fifteen to twenty five dollar range. Like most good wines in that range. But then you feel like, oh, I got to get this like $80 bottle to really be fancy or whatever.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree with that. And I think the same thing for like beer also is like there's some really good beers in the expensive range too. Mm -hmm. But many of them are, you know, kind of made almost to like give people the sense that they're drinking something more expensive than it actually being than it actually being that innovative. Right. So, like, yeah. there's a lot of like cool experimentation that happens at the high end, but there's also a lot of cool experimentation that happens that doesn't cost you a fortune and require you to spend $40 on a bottle.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> when we went to that bar in SF and got the Pliny the Younger, that was the price of a normal pint. They weren't charging anything extra for it. Yep. Yeah.
1: That's exactly what I mean. Yeah. There's like some, like, you don't need to spend $40, $50 a bottle, which is what there are plenty of breweries now that are doing that. And, um, I mean, it's kind of like, he, I think it's this chapter, right, where he brings it up, where he's like, an entire industry meant to swindle you will swindle you. Financial consultants, diet advisors, oh, exercise yeah. experts, lifestyle engineers, sleeping counselors, breathing specialists, etc." cetera. And it's kind of like, yeah, if there are people willing to pay for it, someone's going to make it. But I think you're right, like with wine, too. Like maybe, you know, I'm sure with some of the high-end wines, I'm sure there's, you know, something different. But I think the delta of what the difference is versus the delta in the cost it is probably rarely worth it. Right. Right? Like I'm I'm imagining like a thousand dollar wine can't be like a hundred times better than a ten dollar wine. Yeah.
0: That's the real question is is it that multiple of better? And it's usually like you're going from a, you know, four and a half star to a four point seven star, which is like a pretty marginal difference, especially after you've had a glass, right? yeah exactly (laughs) because it's like the first glass of wine you're like really tasting it and enjoying it and then after the first glass you're just like drinking wine right for for (laughs) most wines (laughs) yep
1: (laughs) exactly this is all making me want to do another wine episode i know we'll have to
0: we'll do that for the one with the deal
1: yeah which we're not giving away what that is no no
0: no spoilers Yeah, <laughs> well, but I think he makes a good point about the whole like mansion suburb life, too, right? Like that definitely makes people unhappier and unhealthier, right? Living in a big house, like separated from people where you have to like drive to get to everything. But yep. because it's a symbol of status, people do it, right? Yeah, the like silent mansion thing. Exactly. The silent mansion far away from neighbors. Like you want to show off that you have money and status. So you buy this big house like far out from the activity as like a signaling tool, but it makes you like unhappier and we know it makes you unhealthier as well. Right? right. It's like there's so many things that we do for this just kind of signaling, despite them being against our own like personal self-interest
1: and our own desires too. Yeah. And
0: our own desires.
1: Yeah. Such a good point.
0: Well, This is where he finally talks about all the virtue signaling stuff.
1: Oh, OK, cool. Oh, yeah. yeah that's a little lower. Yep.
0: Yeah, which we've talked about a lot so far, because I think that there was a strong strain of that throughout the whole book, yep. particularly just because it's so, like, relevant right now, and he, he brings in the example that you mentioned earlier, right, where, and I think this actually happened at Amherst, where students were, like, shitting on this speaker saying that he wasn't, like, taking into account white privilege and all of this, and it's a great video if anyone hasn't watched it. It's just, like... Oh, I haven't seen that. It's hilarious, because it's this, like, it's this guy, it's this, like, white kid, and he's, like... Oh, privilege privilege like you're not taking into account how people with power like systematically oppressed like minorities and like all these other people and that's the only reason they were successful and all of that and then D'Souza's like look if you really believe that that white people have like all of this stuff for unfair reasons and i think D'Souza's like indian or something too right so he, yeah yeah he's indian yeah. Um, he's saying like look if you really believe this like why haven't you given up your spot at amherst right right and right. the kid just has, like, no response. Like, there's nothing he can say at that point. Right, what do you say at that point? I think he keeps, like, repeating the same stuff, where he's just like, no, 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 like, you don't understand, like, privilege and power and all this. And he's like, well, okay, like, prove it. Like, show me you actually care about this. And that's the problem. Is like, uh, especially, like, everyone at these Ivy Leagues talking about privilege and stuff. It's like, you know, one, if you're there, you are privileged, too. At that right. point, like, race is almost a negligible difference if you have a Yale degree. And two, it's like, you need to have skin in the game. If you actually believe that you being there is unfair, then like, go give up your spot. Right. But they don't do that.
1: He also brought up the people who are like in opposition to the market system. Yeah, exactly. Right.
0: The socialists who are tweeting about it on their iPhones. Right. Right. Or the the anti-capitalists who are tweeting about it. It's like, well, if you are really anti-capitalism, you need to go live in a cabin in the woods. Right.
1: Right. Or he said uh, somewhere in Vermont or northwestern Afghanistan. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, no, but I think it's a good point though, right? It's like, it's like, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. And that's like the equivalent, right? Of the Amherst thing. It's like, you're having it both ways when you complain about this, but then you don't do, you don't take the action that you can take. Exactly. Right. I really like the way that he brought this up or the way he brought this to an ethical principle where he said, I know of no ethical system that allows you to let someone drown without helping him because other people are not helping. Right. No system that says I will save people from drowning only if others too save other people from drowning. Which is like, you know, the argument that someone would come back with if you say that class privilege thing to them, right? It's like they would come back and be like, well, you know, what difference is my seat going to make, right? It's a whole systemic issue. And it's like, okay, like that's not really a valid response.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like saying that, oh, well, letting this one person drown is fine because so many other people are going to drown this year. Exactly. Well, it's kind of like the example, I think we brought this up in a past episode, but somebody was like picking a fight on my dad's Facebook and the guy was like just a very militant vegan. And sort of like in the course of his fight picking, he eventually was like, well, you know, humans are the ultimate plague on this earth and we need to just like get rid of humans if we want to save the environment. And, you know, I was so tempted to just comment and be like, look. Like, okay, we'll start with yourself, right? Right. If you truly believe right. that, then you should have offed yourself by now, but you haven't, so you obviously don't truly believe this. It's like those absurd arguments where people say like, oh, I don't want to have a kid because this is such like a bad world to bring a kid into. And it's like, if you think this world is you know too bad for people to live in it, then like, why are you still here? You obviously don't really believe that.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah, your actions are not reflecting your beliefs. Exactly. When you say stuff like that. Or it's like, I mean, there's a lot of people like, America is like very obviously not a perfect country, right? Like there's a lot of flaws, but there's a lot of people that like, not a lot. Okay. It's probably, again, a minority situation, right? Like, but there are some people that pretty much like, like, I can't see anything that they've ever publicly said that was like good about the American system. Oh yeah. But they still but, live like, here. Clearly they Well, yeah. And it's like not that hard to move. Like yeah. for these people I'm referring to, it's like they, they have some means, right? It wouldn't be that hard for them to like move to Canada or to like Europe, you know? But like, I'm sure you see people like that on your social media sometimes who are like always saying like how, you know, these things in Europe are so much better, or, like Canada's better or whatever. It's like you clearly don't actually believe that. Yeah. Otherwise, like you would very easily be able to, you know, <laughs> it is
0: not that hard to go live somewhere else,
1: especially in English speaking place like Canada. Like you could always say like, you know, for France or something. OK, I don't speak French. OK, maybe that's maybe that's a valid excuse. But like, Canada or the UK or something like it's still English.
0: I kept thinking about that during the election, too, where it was like all these people were saying, oh, if Trump gets elected, I'm going to Canada. Right. And it's like, who actually went? right maybe like two people yeah. <laughs> so it's like everyone who was posting about that on facebook w- when they were doing it i was like come on like, you're not actually going to do it right this is so ridiculous yep. but it's it's like that same virtue signaling right you want to show that you're part of the in group and so you have to say like oh i'm so you know incensed about this that if it happens i'm going to like do these things but then you know there's actually no pressure to follow through because everybody else engaging in it knows that you're all in this sort of complicit agreement to uh, you know, just like look really virtuous, uh, without ever having to actually do anything about it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, he brought, I don't know if it's in my notes, but he brought up, um, this one point that that reminded me of, of how like everyone always like, wants to do something for the children, right? And uses that as like the sort of like virtue that they want to push for, whether it's like, oh, these children are like starving or they need healthcare or like these kinds of things. Yeah. But a lot of times that's just virtue signaling also, like it's not necessary. Like they're not actually trying to do something for the children.
0: Well, a really good example of that, that I kind of discovered recently is those trips that especially like high school and college students will go on to help orphanages in other countries. That's actually really bad for those places.
2: Hmm. Interesting. It like
0: makes you look really good as a tourist, but apparently because these orphanages get so much aid from tourists and from, you know, foreign governments and stuff, they will literally steal children from impoverished locals. Wow. And keep them in the orphanages to like prop up these orphanages and to like make it seem like there's way more, you know, parentless kids than there actually are, or they will like pay families to let their kids fake it for a while so that the orphanages can keep getting supported. And so there's like these pretty big movements. And actually, I found it through JK Rowling because she tweets about it a lot, uh, is that there's like pretty compelling movements to just like stop giving any aid to these foreign orphanages because it's making the problem way worse. But people are mostly going right because like it looks good and you know it's great on your college application. I don't know. Have you ever seen the Tumblr account Humanitarians of Tinder? No. It's a hilarious Tumblr account. It's just like all these white people playing with babies in Africa. (laughs) It's like it's such a common thing, right? And it's. Like that is the perfect example of this sort of virtue signaling is like, oh, I'm going to go hang out in this orphanage for two weeks, take a bunch of photos, like look really humanitarian on my Facebook and my Tinder profile, but then like not do anything else and actually make the problem worse.
1: Right, exactly. And actually, I've heard that criticism about like Tom's also.
0: Yeah. The shoes (laughs) destroyed local economies. Right. Yeah. Well, because there's no more supply chain around
1: shoes. If you think about that, it's like not just the people that make the shoes, but it's all the things that go into the shoes
0: as well. Yeah. It's probably a pretty big part of the economy because it's like a staple necessity.
1: Right. It's something everybody needs. So not everybody needs, but like most people would use. Right. And so it's like if you're just going to go airdrop these things in. It kind of has the opposite effect that you're trying to do.
0: That's why I like all the effective altruism stuff, because they actually look at, OK, you know, what works, what doesn't screw up parts of the economy when we go in and try to help. And I think the big ones are like water and education. Mm that actually help that actually help with very few systemic downsides right what about things
1: like um i would imagine like malaria nets? yeah the, that probably helps. well i think
0: malaria nets are the most efficient way to donate money to save lives that's what i've heard because
1: they're not very expensive probably right yeah they're they-
0: inexpensive it's easy to get them to people and the likelihood of saving a life with one is fairly high i think it's like for every thirty four hundred dollars you donate to malaria net funds you save a human life that's actually a really good really good ratio it's a great roi if you're trying to really you know, donate money pretty effectively. Well, yeah,
1: you're right. I guess effective altruism that's a big part of the uh, appeal, right? Is they look at the whole system, yeah, as opposed to like, or they try as much of the system as they can, as opposed to just like, you know, we're donating shoes to Africa, <laughs> yeah, interesting. The other thing that was really interesting here that I, I really liked was, um, you know, because I, I like reading history, but I, ever since you know, starting to read Taleb a few years ago. I've had this, you know, obviously nagging doubt about history that he really brings up a lot, which is that a lot of history is just, like, the wars and the, like, exciting events, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, than all the, like, peacetime and, like, the day-to-day life that most of history is. And so his, um... Where's the quote here? Where he's talking about how... uh there used to be frequent like skirmishes back in the day, but the magnitude of those skirmishes would not be anywhere close to the amount of people that died in like World War One or World War II or something. And so he got in, I think, a couple years ago, this big debate about whether the world is getting safer or, or sorry, less violent or more violent.
0: Well, that's like his ongoing debate with Steven Pinker.
1: That's what I thought. Right. Yeah. OK, yeah. So the debate is basically like the frequency of violent events is going down. But the magnitude of those events, you know, since the 20th century onwards has just gone like massively up. Yeah. And I think that's like without a doubt true. Like pre-World War I, there were like the Civil War, I think before that was the most Fatalities, if I remember that correctly, but it, it was really high up there. But like the Revolutionary War did not have very many fatalities, right? <laughs> which is like wild to think about, right? It's like we think of that as a war, like it was a war, but by today's standards, it's like a series of skirmishes.
0: Well, and you can go back further, right? Alexander the Great, his army was only like 40,000 people, right? But he conquered most of the world with that. Like, that's that's like a rounding error on some of the armies today.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, Taleb brings up the great point of like, it was in the interest of all of these historical people to exaggerate the size of the casualties.
0: Oh, yeah. Right.
1: Because if you're like the Mongols, right? Like, And I actually read a book, uh, blanking on what it's called, but I will definitely, it's like the, uh, I think it's The Making of the World by Genghis Khan or something like that. Something like that. I'll find it. It's uh, anyways, a great book about him. But that's one of the main contentions in that book as well, is that a lot of these claims were exaggerated by the Mongols themselves because they wanted to intimidate future enemies. So they would say like, oh, we slaughtered every single person in the city and we killed 500,000 people. But then really it might have been like 5,000 people, (laughs) which is still a lot, but like it's not 500,000 people. (laughs) Yeah. I think in that book there was like a quote of like one of the the messengers scrolls that they had sent to another city. That was like, there's a river of blood running in the city because we slaughtered every single man, woman and child. And like, but that like turned out to like not be true at all. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And it was a way to basically get the next city to submit without even having to fight them just way more efficient
0: so oh definitely and again it like prevents more of the bloodshed i mean he taleb's got that the great example about italy where people were saying that like oh italy has been in this period of stability for the last 150 years or whatever but more than 600,000 Italians died in the great war which was an order of magnitude higher than all cumulative fatalities in the 500 years before it right
1: yep it's the fat tail yeah right.
0: it's, it, well, it's a, yeah very much so i mean in four. literally the fat tail uh, how, how long was world war 1 4 years 5 years yeah 14 to 18 i think 1914 yeah. to 1918 yeah so yeah you could you could lose 600,000 Italians in 4 years and lose versus 60,000 versus 60,000 in the prior 500 years <laughs> yeah right so it's like yeah sure there's fewer events, but the events are so much worse, right? That you really can't say the world is getting like safer. Right. I mean, it was kind of like I I had this discussion with my mom when I was living in Argentina where she was basically saying like, you know, be careful, like it's dangerous there, all of that. And I was like, well, I mean, actually like in Argentina, there's a lot of muggings, but there's very little violent crime, right? So Mm. you have extremely low probability of getting shot in the street, whereas if you're in New York or D.C., or Chicago, whatever, like much higher probability of getting shot, much lower probability of getting mugging. So you have a lower probability of something bad happening overall. But if something bad happens, it's way worse. Right. Right. Exactly. The magnitude is way, way worse. Exactly. And I was like, I'd much rather have small chance of getting mugged than a smaller but fatal chance of getting shot. Yeah. That seems, you know, way preferable. And that's kind of the point he's making here. And it's it's the point some people have made, too, about tribal society as well, is that, you know, you would, like, get into these wars with neighboring or, like, battles with neighboring tribes. But it was never, like, all out, you know, total war, marching through, killing all of the civilians style, like, you know, World War II total war kind of massacre, right?
1: Right, exactly. The magnitude thing, I think, is a very easy thing for us to forget. You know, like just instinctively, like we think, oh, if there were 10 wars, that must be worse than
0: if there's one war. But it could be like orders of magnitude different. Well, especially now with nuclear weapons and stuff, right? One day could be an order of magnitude worse than all wars in human history. And that's I think that's part of Taleb's point, too, about how the world is not safer today is because it literally could just, you know, in one day wipe out all of humanity if people wanted to. Exactly.
1: And we have the capability to do that. Exactly.
0: And that was never possible before.
1: Right. Yeah. I also like this quote he had about history books, which is reading a history book without putting its events in perspective offers a similar bias to reading an account of life in New York seen from an emergency room at Bellevue Hospital. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's like... Such a great way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. I saw these book racks he put in there. I, I'm curious to check one of them out to see if it'd be interesting.
0: The history of private life.
1: Yeah. I wonder if it'd be interesting. Yeah. It
0: sounded interesting, right?
1: Yeah. It seemed interesting. Like it seemed like stuff that never gets talked about.
0: Exactly. Just like what was life like?
1: Like we always speculate on it, right?
0: We just hear about the big military events and you know, some religious history stuff, but never just about like what was life like? Yeah.
1: Like, what did Seneca eat on a non-fasting day? Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Although he was super rich, so maybe it would be different than the normal day-to-day life.
0: (laughs) Yeah, fair. (laughs) (laughs) That's part of what I like about traveling to these places, though, is that if you get, like, a good tour guide and stuff, they'll usually talk about that part as well, which is always pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, it's almost more interesting. Not more interesting, but it's like you've heard a lot of the other stuff, possibly. Right. Like, the military stuff, but, like... You might not have heard of, you know, what their day to day life might have been like or is like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Right for book? Book seven. Which is religion, belief and skin in the game. I got the sense that like he would be very good friends with Jordan Peterson.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would love for them to do like a <laughs> oh a podcast together. Oh, that'd be amazing.
1: They're very different personality wise, mm-hmm. right? Like obviously they both stick up for things that they believe in. But, you know, so from that standpoint, they're similar personality wise, but like Peterson usually doesn't like go on the attack. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like in the same way that Taleb does.
0: He gives like a wonderful defense. Right. I feel like they'd be the friends in the bar and Peterson would be like holding Taleb back, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> be like, all right, come on, Nicholas, let's go home. I'm like you've had too much.
1: You know what? That would be like an incredible drinking outing. It would be like going out with both of them.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> That'd be amazing.
1: <laughs> that could get like very interesting. Uh, and the best place to do it would be like outside of the Middlebury campus.
0: <laughs> oh. No, just somewhere where you can also get like Sam Harris and Steve Pinker to show up and then yeah, well, then be a good time.
1: This is a, a tangent, but obviously related to the book is I did not realize that Taleb and Sam Harris don't like
0: each other. I think Sam Harris started it.
1: Okay. So I don't even know the history of it. I just saw some of the shots at Sam Harris and I was like, whoa, this came out of nowhere.
0: Yeah. There's a quotation from Sam Harris in, I think it was in an interview or something about Taleb. And it is one of the most hilariously well-written mean things i've ever read
1: <laughs> what is it
0: oh god did i send it I'm to gonna you search
1: for it no, yeah I'm gonna, maybe you did uh, i'm just gonna search it right now let's see because you wouldn't think that they would dislike each other you know what i mean
0: yeah it seems like they could get along but
1: oh i see I, I think i have seen this quote before the one about him being like a bully and
0: yeah about how we had dinner with him once oh wait maybe i'm looking at a different one
1: The quote I'm seeing is like, I know many of you love this guy and think he's a genius. Yeah, that's the one. Okay.
0: You want to read it off?
1: Yeah. Okay. So Sam Harris on Nassim Taleb. I know many of you love this guy and think he's a genius. I can assure you, none among you are as impressed with his intelligence as he is. This guy is just insufferable and he's a bully and most of the time doesn't make any sense and never knows it. I've actually never witnessed a marriage of incompetence and confidence so fully and grotesquely consummated in the mind of a person with a public platform. This is the most arrogant person I've ever had the misfortune of meeting. When you meet him, you quickly discover that he radiates a sense of grievance from his pores in a way that few people do. It's kind of like a preternatural force of negative charisma, (laughs) and he can convey his contempt for everyone at the table, even in the way he says, pass the salt. He is so convinced that his genius has not been appropriately lauded that he finds some way to communicate this in almost every interaction. He is a child in a man's body and the mismatch between his estimation of himself and the quality of his utterances is so complete and so mortifying to witness in person that you're just jumping out of your skin.
0: (laughs) It's like you almost can't be mad at him for saying that because it is so it is like the best insult I think I've ever read.
1: Yeah, (laughs) probably. Obviously, I don't know about you. I've never met Taleb, so I have no idea how he is in person. But there are definitely like kernels of that that you can see in the books.
0: I'm sure that it is selectively true. Right. right
1: exactly yep yep that's what i was gonna say is like, like i'm
0: sure that if he is with certain people he is 100 percent that way
1: right yeah And probably I bet he already didn't like Sam Harris if he knew anything about him Yeah, because of his like hyper-rationalism.
0: Hyper-rationalism and hyper-anti-religionism.
1: Right, right. So I bet there was already some animosity. So maybe he was acting like more of an asshole than he would normally (laughs) act uh, with Sam Harris. So there's probably some of that.
0: He makes a good point in criticizing, I think, Sam Harris's like strong atheism though, which is that it misses the point on a lot of the value of religion.
1: But that was like the whole debate between Peterson and Harris also yeah like they're objectively these things might not exist but then it's like there's a survival bias to people who believed in this so meaning
0: they're useful in some way yeah
1: yeah, it's useful on a certain plane of reality and that's the survivability plane right which Peterson was arguing is like more useful than the objective plane exactly like on the objective plane well actually uh Taleb talks about this later right where he talks about how your eyes were not created to see the world objectively they were created to help, or not created, but they've evolved to help you survive.
0: Yeah, I think that's a perfect example. Yeah. And it's honestly, I find it hard to know which side to come down on in that argument. I find both sides very compelling. Same here. Right. It's like you would think from the science
1: perspective. Right. I think so. I think maybe it comes down to like if you're a strict Darwinist, then it's like all about survival. It like kind of doesn't matter what's the objective like what's objectively better? Because the only thing that's objectively better is survival. Like you know what I mean?
0: I mean, I think part of it too could just be that it's kind of like Taleb's distinction between science and scientism. It's uh, like yeah, there are things where Sam Harris's idea of truth makes sense, but then there are other things where it doesn't. Right? Like his version of truth as like you know what is logical and reasonable and like deducible by you know empirical observation and all of that. That is certainly true for some things, but I think there are also truths that do not fit that mold and they're not necessarily in opposition, right?
1: Yeah, they're not. I mean, it doesn't have to be in opposition. It's like, I think there's also an argument between these two sides that they're kind of making, which they're almost speaking past each other because like Sam Harris is arguing, at least from my understanding of what he's arguing. I actually haven't read any of his books, so I could be misrepresenting his point too. So correct me if I'm wrong, but- It seems like he's arguing that like there is an objective world and that's the world that we live in. And that's like in that world, there's like no such thing as like a God that's observable at least. And there's nothing that you can objectively empirically say that like, you know, there's something to religion, like religion is not real on that plane of reality. But I think what the other side is saying is that we don't live in the objective world. We live in the experienced world. And in the experienced world, it's not just about what's objectively there. It's how we actually experience it. I don't know. That's my interpretation of the debate. Yeah. But I could be wrong about that. Have you read any of his books, like Sam Harris's books? I haven't I haven't done that yet. Yeah,
0: I've read, I've read Waking Up and Lying. They're both excellent. I'd highly recommend them.
1: Yeah. I, we, I think we've talked about doing one of his books on the show at some point.
0: Yeah, I would be down to do Waking Up because he actually... And this is where it's funny with uh, Taleb's whole argument, is that Taleb is basically saying that you've got all these atheists who say that oh religion is terrible and bad but then they go to yoga three days a week and like sit in concert halls and listen to beautiful orchestras right they still do religious rituals they just have a different name for them and that's where i think sam harris's stuff is interesting too because he's a very spiritual person in terms of he meditates a lot right he he spent over a year on silent meditation retreat wow like he's a really intense meditator and like big into the you know, LSD, mushroom, you know, internal realization type stuff. But then he's also very anti-religion. And I think like I think Harris's point is that religion is not necessary for any of these realizations and that you can have all of the good of religion without any of the bad. And I think that's kind of the crux of his argument is that religion is like a net negative because you don't need it for any of the good things. And Then you just have all these bad things left over um, that people would not do any of these bad things without a religion to drive it. Interesting. I mean,
1: it's like that's the thing. It's like both sides seem to have just some truth. Right. And it's like hard to pick which side is like fully correct.
0: Luckily, we don't have to. Everyone can go listen to their podcasts and decide for themselves.
1: And Taleb and Sam Harris and all these guys can keep arguing and producing entertaining podcast episode i would
0: love it if Taleb went on sam harris's podcast that'd be great oh
1: my gosh I w- that would be unbelievable <laughs> that'd be so
0: good because like you know harris is open to that too because he had uh scott adams on he had that like really strong muslim apologist on
1: oh really which was that i haven't heard that episode
0: oh that one's amazing uh, he titled it the best podcast ever i think oh wow i didn't check that and out and it's literally just him and this guy yelling at each other for three hours like <laughs> it is painful to listen to
1: Is it interesting or no?
0: It's interesting, too. Actually, he did this recently as well with uh, Russell Brand, you know, the actor. Yeah. So Russell Brand has like a podcast and he had Sam Harris on and Sam Harris put the audio on his podcast as well. And Russell is just like the most insufferable postmodernist I think I've ever listened to on a podcast. Like,
1: wait, uh, I haven't heard the episode, but Peterson went on Russell Brand too.
0: Oh, god, I have to listen to that. I haven't seen that. I mean, I haven't heard it, but I saw
1: Peterson tweet that they like there was a picture of them together and he said he
0: just went on the podcast. I wonder if it's out, but it's just a really painful episode to listen to, and like you have to give harris credit because he like doesn't lose his cool he's like very patient and russell's just like screaming over him for half the episode
1: really yeah yeah what's the podcast called under the skin
0: uh yeah that's russell's podcast but
1: oh he it is out it is out the peterson one
0: is out. okay i'll have to listen to that later yeah that'll be interesting yeah
1: cool all right well i think that was
0: book seven right book seven let's let's hop into book eight Risk and Rationality. We're coming up on three hours here. Yeah. This is, well, this, is expected. this is <laughs> like, was expected. It was expected. Yeah, we knew we ran this risk.
1: Well, this one and 12 Rules and Anti-Fragile were the longest. Like, we knew they were going to be the longest. Oh, yeah.
0: Book 8, Risk and Rationality, I think, was the one I got the most from. And maybe he was building to it for the whole book. But I felt like there was the most new stuff in this.
1: He said that. He said the best chapter comes last or something. Yeah,
0: that's right. He did, didn't he?
1: Yeah. <laughs> that was, like, in the subtitle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. I got the most out of this one, too. I think he also completed a lot of the thoughts in this one that I think have been, like, floating around throughout Inserto. Yeah. That's how you say it, right? Inserto? hmm
0: I think so. Yeah. Well, the whole ergodicity thing, he's touched on in light ways in the past books, but this is the first time he really explained it. Yeah. And I had to reread the explanations a couple times to really get it, but once you get it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Especially for the difference between... You know, individual actors and complex systems, skin in the game versus no skin in the game really brings a lot of that together and also kind of like the anti-fragile benefits and the black swan risks like it shows how a lot of it ties together into kind of a simpler idea,
1: how it's all connected. Yeah, how
0: it's all connected, Actually,
1: you know, weirdly enough. I would actually like, if I were, n- have I never read anything by Taleb? I might actually recommend someone starts with this. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like the least complicated.
0: That's a good point. It's the easiest entry point.
1: Yeah. Like, I could see someone getting intimidated by some of the math and stuff in the other books, but like, you would almost be more curious to learn about that after reading this book. This book's almost like the gateway to a lot of the concepts, if you think about yeah, it. Yeah,
0: it would make you much more curious about the stuff in the other books, I think. Hmm. And there's less like math and things.
1: Yeah, there, I mean, except for the appendix, there's like not much. But uh, I guess starting from uh, one of the things up here that I, I liked is that um, just looking at a whole bunch of... Re- oh, yeah, here it is for the Lindy discussion, he says, not everything that happens happens for a reason, but everything that survives, survives for a reason. And I thought there was one thing that he missed on that, or that not missed, but he could have said one extra sentence there, which is that you don't have to know the reason, right? Like, you don't, you might not know the reason, like, you don't have to be able to explain the reason for it to be true. (laughs) Because I think that's a a flaw, right? A lot of us who are sort of like, um, you know, people who, uh, like, have, like, any kind of, like, curiosity always try like I don't know about you I always try to like find what the reason is for something right and like mm-hmm. a lot of times I can like run myself around in a circle trying to figure out a reason but like I might not need to know the reason I might just need to know that it works
0: that it worked exactly or you could uh, it be easy to intuit the wrong reason right
1: yeah or like yeah or get into like some kind of narrative fallacy mm-hmm. it's like what we we're talking about about waking up versus like or like doing your work in the morning versus like you know like waking up early and how that sets the tone for the rest of the day it's like you don't need to know like the neurochemical reason why that's true (laughs) yeah (laughs) it works
0: it works It works. works. exactly well i've started taking that approach to a lot of my own emotions as well it's like if i like something i don't need a reason that i like it it's just like well i like it right like yeah. yeah and i feel like the need to explain kind of like waste time or even trick you into false stuff pretty easily
1: i think jocko does a really good job too of like doing that where it's like when people ask him questions like I, I said this before, but his whole answer to like when people say, how do I wake up early? And he's just like, wake up early, wake up early. Yeah, <laughs> right? it Takes all the complication out of it and makes it almost in a weird way easier when you take all the complication out of it.
0: He He had a great one earlier this week where somebody tweeted at him and was like, I always give up on my diet and exercise regimes after two weeks. Like, what can I do to get more disciplined about it? He's like, be more disciplined, right? Yeah. <laughs> or he's just like, you're not disciplined enough, right? It's like very simple and it's the truest yeah. answer as well, right? Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I think that was a like cool thing where he said for this chapter, that was like, that's a good way of setting the stage. And uh, I'm trying to see. Oh, the whole thing about uncle points was really cool. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, I, I think that leads us to the central distinction for this chapter, which is, ergodicity and non-ergodicity or what he calls here ensemble probability and time probability. And ensemble probability is when you have like 100 people who go to the casino to play poker, you know, one of them will get wiped out. But if you have one person who goes to the casino up to 100 times, they will get wiped out before they finish all 100. So for sure. Yeah. The probability that applies to the ensemble is not the same as what applies to the individual because you can get wiped out and then keep playing the next day. And it's the same thing as like the Russian roulette, right? It's like if you're playing Russian roulette and every time you don't die, you get a million dollars, you can't play it six times and make, you know, 83.33% of $6 million, right? Like you're going to die somewhere along the line. But if you have 100 people and each of them plays Russian roulette once... A sixth of them are going to die, but five sixths of the other ones are all going to make money, right? So it works in the aggregate for the probability. It does not work for the individual.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a really good point he's making here for the problem with a lot of like financial forecasts and the way that a lot of things are computed in finance, right? Where, or not just finance, probably everywhere, where it's like they're confusing the two types of probability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also like how he makes a really good point about paranoia and risk aversion, where it's like something might seem like it's not risky, but each additional thing that you do, it kind of like it like risk does not exist in a vacuum, I guess, like, so when you're examining something, right, like, you're not just thinking about the risk of that activity, your your brain is probably computing the risk of all the activities that you're doing. And, you know, something might be too risky, even though objectively it might not be that risky. Yeah. Um, I forget. There was a good example you had, but I don't know if I have it in my notes. Well, the, the
0: financial example was a good one, right? The yeah. whole flip a coin to make or lose $100 and most people won't play it. Yeah. But, you know, for most people, like losing $100 is a much bigger impact on their financial standing than gaining $100 would be, right? Right. Because most people have so little money that they bank, Right because like living paycheck to paycheck and everything. So it like it, it actually does make sense for them to be risk averse, right? It's not really like a risk aversion or an irrationality, like they are being rational, because there is a bigger downside to losing that money.
1: Well, I think he makes a, a that kind of leads to a really good point that he makes, which is that, you know, ruin is the ultimate thing you're trying to avoid. Yeah. And that like that risk is not like, okay, any risk of ruin is like, pretty much unacceptable essentially right it's like so in your example of the hundred dollars like making a hundred dollars versus losing a hundred dollars it's like losing a hundred dollars might actually bring you closer to ruin for in most people's cases then making a hundred dollars actually improves your situation <laughs> um and it's a hard thing to like grasp at first when you start thinking about it but then like with all the examples it really i don't know it really just starts to coalesce and like make sense yeah like the bathtubs one is an interesting point too like the ebola versus bathtubs thing
0: yeah exactly that like certain risks just are not the same and there's another one where it's so clear once you hear it but you know people saying that oh ebola causes fewer deaths than people drowning in their bathtubs and it's like okay, but people drowning in their bathtubs won't suddenly double next year, right? Right. Whereas deaths from Ebola could go up by an order of magnitude, right? So Ebola is a much bigger concern than bathtub deaths, and just because it's low right now, does not mean that it cannot become massive.
1: Yep, and I think that's a real fallacy in a lot of like just the way humans think, right? Is like yeah. we think that like things are all on the same scale, but they're not. Like more people could die from Ebola next year than. Have ever died in the history of humanity in their bathtubs? Right? Exactly, but that's never going to happen for bathtubs. <laughs> like right. next year, more people are not going to die from bathtubs than have ever died in the history of that. Bath- like that's just not one of unless something changes with bathtubs, right? Like, that's just, <laughs> you know that could change that um that calculation. But like like you see the point I'm making though, right? Exactly. Like Some things are yeah. Some things can scale to a whole different level. Well, it's kind of like when people have risk. Like um, if, it always goes back to finance. I feel like, but. A lot of the, uh, you know, like new financial instruments, like, you know, in the um, in the financial crisis, like the credit default swaps, Mm -hmm. it was like, well, okay, the odds of this, you know, going like in most years, this is like this is like ninety nine point nine percent safe or something. Right. But like even if that was true, the risk of it, like that point, you know, whatever small percentage chance that it's all going to blow up, that was like systemic risk. Right. It wasn't just something where it's like, okay, well, in that point, one percent of time where it doesn't work it's just going to go down and like, okay, it goes down 10%. No big deal. It's like, if it goes down, it's it's going to collapse.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's been kind of his point about like terrorism, too. Because yeah. you'll, you'll notice he gets into like Twitter rants about terrorism whenever people start comparing it to other non multiplicative risks. That's yeah, the terminology we would now use, right? Where people say like, Oh, well, more people were killed by lightning in the last year in the US than were killed by terrorists, right? It's like, okay, well, that's true, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about terrorism because, you know, a few really devastating acts could cause such a massive number of deaths, right? Right. I think it's kind of his point about, like, some of the gun control stuff, too, is that we're unlikely to suddenly see hundreds of, you know, crazy white guys go on school shootings but if, you know, a terrorist group did get, you know, into the U.S. and get their way, like you could see that result. So we should be more concerned about the terrorism organizations than crazy individuals within the country.
1: Yeah, I agree. Because that's sort of almost like normal variance in some ways. Yeah. Um, have you. Uh, well, I think this is I think this is a true stat. It could be wrong, but I've definitely seen that stat floating around of like how uh, gun deaths have actually gone down over the past 20, 30 years. But I could be wrong, like on a per capita basis, but I could be wrong about that.
0: I think that's right. Um, but I think that's a medicine thing. Like, I, I think that gun deaths have gone down, but shootings have gone up.
1: Oh, right? I see. That's a good point. Yep. We've just gotten yeah, better. So people at, are just not dying.
0: Yeah, people yeah. just aren't dying from that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense.
0: Which was like, uh, I heard somebody talking about this in an interview. It was like an FBI guy. And he was saying like, people have this sort of illusion of safety because so many fewer people die now but fewer people die just because medicine's better intervening so like you still have a decent chance of getting like stabbed in a dark alley but you're less likely to die from it so you should still like learn how to defend yourself in those situations right you don't want to get fooled by the statistics about less death right which i thought was kind of interesting but, yeah that's
1: really interesting because that's the stat you would end up looking at
0: exactly it's like oh well not many people are dying so it's like fairly safe and well no you know you still don't want to like get stabbed and get rushed to the hospital and you know maybe lose you know full function in one of your arms right that's not gonna be a fun life you
1: know, like you won't no. die but yeah but it's still like still has a big risk yeah cool i think for that one that was that was most of it kind of sums it up yeah but i thought that was a really good chapter to like sum up the whole book and like a lot of things that he's talking about exactly
0: and it, I mean, I think the way it ties back to skin in the game is like a little not immediately intuitive, but it's basically that when you have skin in the game, your outcomes are not ergodic, right? So it's like when you are playing Russian roulette, uh, you can't calculate ensemble probabilities, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you can't say like, oh, my expected value is $833,000, right? Because you're going to die somewhere on the way to $833,000. Right, right. So exactly. like, when you have skin in the game, you can't use those kinds of odds. You have to go for like the timeline type odds, which are very different.
1: It will lead you to take very different actions.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Well, it, I'm surprised he didn't bring this back up in skin in the game because it was a great point anti-fragile, which is like the average life expectancy is, you know, like 82 or something. And so there were these financial planners on TV giving advice for what to do if you're 76. So you only have six more years to live. Right. And it's like, no, no, no. If you're 76, your life expectancy is like 89. Right. Right. It changes. You can't use ensemble stats for yourself at the individual level. It doesn't exist, right?
1: It's like what he says about static versus dynamic probability, right? It's like it's like a lot of people are not good at dynamic probability, where things change as exactly. you move along. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where it's just like, yeah, you're right. That is actually a huge fallacy of saying like, well, if you're 70, then your life expectancy is 76. It's like not true at all. Right. It's 76 when you're, you know, like. For the average person, the average aged person, right, I think? Or is it when yeah. it's not
0: when you're born? No, I, I think it's it's from birth. It's it's like the from life birth. expectancy of somebody born, you know, this year. Well, and there's a few variations of them, right? Because I think for our age group now, the life expectancy is something like in the 90s. But for the average person alive right now, it's something in the low 80s. But then for somebody just born, it's probably like closer to 100. Just based on medical projections and stuff, and it,
1: probably there's a ton of variance in these things too. Yeah. It's like I'm sure there's expectation of medical advancement, which yeah, I mean, hopefully happens, right? But it's not
0: guaranteed. But that that's also definitely a thing where it's like, uh, and this is kind of Elon Musk's whole point about aging is that most people who are trying to work on anti-aging stuff are kind of wasting their time because no dietary or lifestyle intervention will get us past one twenty, one thirty, right? Yep. Like the only way you get past that is genetic reprogramming. So,
1: and even then, there's still like the whole accident side of things
0: exactly you never it's kind of like the taking statins, right? You never know what tweaking one variable in a complex system is going to do,
1: yeah, well, I meant more even like let's say there was no old age, like no dying of old age, like at what point will an accident of some sort get you oh yeah, <laughs> like, of, like just falling and just like- die. you know like like you could do all sorts of the you know you, you the odds are if you keep driving like for as many you know whatever number of years, it's kind of like playing Russian roulette exactly at some point. Something will happen.
0: Did I ever send you that simulation?
1: Yeah, yeah, you did. Yep.
0: Yeah, it's like if we didn't die of old age, you'd have about a 50% chance that the way you die is from driving. Right. Actually, it's more than that. It's like 75%. It's really high.
1: Yeah, so that's like one other thing, right? Is like arguably, you know, anything that can make that safer is has a huge impact on life expectancy.
0: Yes. Yes, please. Self-driving cars.
1: Yeah especially done right. Although Taleb may argue that that could create more systemic risk.
0: Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's like one bug in the system and then all the cars in the country crash, right?
1: Right, because right now it's like not going to happen that every single car drives off a bridge. Yeah. <laughs> right. But like with self-driving cars, that becomes theoretically possible. So it might be the frequency of car accidents goes down, but then each event becomes much more.
0: The magnitude gets much worse.
1: Yeah, <laughs> much worse. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I mean think the answer
0: is to just live in major cities and you can just walk walk places
1: yeah i think he mentioned that in one of the things right is like walking uh crossing the street is not actually as big of a risk as we all uh are you know led to believe but that's maybe it's not as big of a risk because we're led to believe it's a big risk so we actually look both ways yeah
0: all right should we wrap this up good marathon episode good marathon episode great episode yeah all right well all of that said obviously everyone should go grab a copy of skin in the game Yep. Uh, if you want to buy it on Amazon. If you haven't already. Yeah, if you haven't already. I assume most of our audience already has it. But
1: Yeah, and they should be subscribed to the email list, which they would have heard about this, uh, that we're doing this episode like a couple weeks ago. And you should have bought the book at that point yeah. if you hadn't already bought it.
0: <laughs> well, just in case you haven't, or in case you want to buy anything else on Amazon, you can go to made you think slash support and click through to Amazon and anything you buy there will get a nice little cut of doesn't cost you anything extra just helps us out a bit helps, uh, you know, continue to give Jeff Bezos the chance to get knocked out of the 1% right? <laughs> maintaining the, the freedom of the market. Yep. So that's a great way to support the show. Uh, you can also check out any of our sponsors. So there's Kettle and Fire for all of your delicious bone brothy needs. You can go to kettleandfire.com/think and get anywhere from about twenty to thirty percent off. So it'll give you some pretty good deals depending on how much broth you want in your life. Yeah, free shipping, which is always good. Yep. You can also check out perfectketo.com/think for any of your keto related needs. I uh, really like their coffee flavored exogenous ketones, their matcha flavored MCT oil powder. Uh, They've got a really good pre-workout if you're trying to do keto and also work out. It's very helpful. Got some BCAAs in there, which help prevent you. uh, uh, What's it called when you when you kind of like run out of bonking? Is that what it's called? (laughs) What? You know, when when you run out of glucose and you just like lose all your energy while you're running or exercising. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You hit the wall. Hit the wall. Exactly.
0: Yeah. It just helps prevent that because it's pretty easy to hit that wall if you're doing keto and lifting heavy. So good for that and yeah and then forstigmaticcom slash think for your mushroom coffee and other mushroomy needs aside from the fun kind of mushrooms you can get the mushroom coffee which we love you can get the cordyceps elixir the reishi elixir really good for sleep their hot cocos are delicious and basically have no sugar in them just a little bit of stevia so they're a safe indulgence and uh yeah if you're enjoying the show be sure you sign up for email alerts we do send out newsletters occasionally. They're always a nope. pleasant surprise when they arrive in your inbox
1: and <laughs> we try to keep the variable rewards, right? Exactly. Like, yeah, You never know. A casino.
0: I just assume everyone's There's waking up cheap. in the morning and hoping that they've gotten one that day.
1: Yeah. That's clearly what our audience
0: is doing. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. I mean, <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'll try to surprise you one day now.
0: Yes. <laughs> and, uh, leave a review, leave a review, please on
1: iTunes or wherever else you're listening to your podcasts. And, uh, let us know what you think. Uh, we're on Twitter. I'm at the s
0: And I'm at Nat Eliason. We like to respond there. So feel free to send us a tweet anytime.
1: Yeah, articles or if we got something wrong, yell at us. If you hated the episode, please tweet it out. Yeah, exactly. Tell everybody how much you hated
0: it. That helps more people find the show.
1: Yep. You can definitely tag Nassim Taleb in it because I would love for him to not either hate our episode or love our episode. I yeah, I'd be, be okay with good, either. Good options yeah (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah on that note we'll see you guys next time
0: see you guys next time have a good one